Hi, this is Kane Hodder, Victor Crowley, Jason from Friday the 13th. You're listening to WithoutYourHead.com. of decapitation without your head i'm nasty neil and i'm joined by friend of without your head actually the man who named me nasty neil on the show leatherface himself r.a mihailov how are you doing nasty neil what are you doing brother (laughs) i'm doing well i'm doing good it's uh i'm getting ready to go charlotte's this time i'm packing tonight i like to pack ahead of time uh and i'm looking forward to seeing you and uh, you're going to be in the Leatherface costume, from what I understand, for the first time since the first time. Uh, well, uh, this will be the uh, this will be the first ever uh, costume photo op I've done. Yeah, that's pretty so. cool. And I heard there's actually uh, gate. Uh, not, I almost said game used, like a uh, like in the NFL or something, but uh, movie used uh, uh, props. Yes, the uh, original Excalibur chainsaw, the screen used Excalibur chainsaw will be in the photo op with me. That's pretty cool. I think Eben said there were teeth, too. Yes. Uh, the only <laughs> the only <laughs> thing I kept from the movie, uh, actually, was, was the teeth. Uh, and that's, I'll, that's a story I'll have to tell you at another time. But uh, <laughs> I ended up with them, and uh, so we're going to wear them in the, uh, you know, in the photo shoot. Cool. I'm glad you actually said that you had kept them, because I did wonder, like, it's it's just some guy like you know keep these teeth and is Ari gonna just like uh, you know I don't know what the guy's been doing with them for all these years and all right, is you're, Ari you're dragging, gonna put them in his mouth? You're, you're dragging it out of me, Neil. I'll give you the high spots. 
right. I've pep- you know when I when I publicized the movie uh, in 1990, uh, they they uh, had me do some uh, appearances in a costume, uh, and I just I stuck the teeth in my vest pocket. Uh, after the last appearance, I guess, and you know, when they took the wardrobe, no, none of us remembered the teeth. So, uh, when I got back to California, I found them in my vest pocket, and it's too um, too late to give them back then. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, once you get the costume on, obviously, it's gonna be cool to meet the uh, the fans to see and take the photos and everything. Is there anything you'd like to do while, while you have the Leatherface uh, costume on again? Uh, no. Not really. Uh, this is for the fans, you know. I mean, uh-huh. uh, I, uh, I'm doing it for, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so people have the opportunity to get a, you know, a professionally staged photo op with uh, me in character. Yeah. I think that's, you know? I think that's awesome. And uh, Jeff Burr's going to be there, too. Did you keep up with him after the movie? Oh, yeah. Uh <laughs> Uh, I, I was actually the one that, uh, you know, suggested he, he uh, uh, be invited to the show. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, yeah, we, we're good friends. We hang out all the time. Uh, uh, you know, I, when I travel the country, uh, I always stop in his hometown and spend a few days. Oh, cool. Have you guys ever talked about uh, working together on uh, any, any future projects? Constantly. Constantly. <laughs> and... You know, it's just a matter of time, a matter of finding the right project at the right time with the right people involved. Mm-hmm. And, so you uh, don't want to give it. You don't want to give any ideas away. I assume. No, not really. And there's really nothing concrete to talk about. There's, you know, we 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 uh, we toss thought grenades back and forth constantly. You know, but uh, until somebody writes a big fat check, it's nothing but talk. You know. <laughs> uh huh. Uh-huh. Oh. Just like I'm giving you here to do the show, this big fat check. Oh, you are? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but, uh... oh, here, let me give you my address and put a lot of zeros. <laughs> right. uh, I also have to ask: uh, Is there any particular food you're looking forward to in Charlotte? Because I know you like, like myself, like to uh, when you're in a new place, like to fi- to find something interesting in that in that location, you know, unique to them. Teeth. Well, you know, I haven't done my I uh, haven't done my Charlotte uh, homework, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I don't know of anything particularly in Charlotte. Maybe some, you know, barbecue, probably. Yeah, I've been looking myself because people who have seen me they might not know this, but I do like to eat. I know uh, it might come to surprise a lot of people, but I've been looking myself, and uh, there's uh, some barbecue places couple burger places but there isn't like one particular thing that like pops out like uh, you know in some areas nothing that's coming to mind immediately and you know i i i share that with you too you know uh neil i eat almost every day <laughs> really really yes. uh, it's very unique i'm sure so there's a lot of our listeners like wow it's uh it's fascinating yeah <laughs> but uh i just had to mention though you've been really busy the last few years uh, I think actually after you won without your head the first time, uh, you started doing all kinds of movies. So, oh, well, maybe hey, maybe that that uh, that mojo will repeat itself. <laughs> that's yeah, it's very true. That's that's a good uh, yeah, a nice kick uh, a kick in the in the leg, kick in the arm. But uh, yeah, I, so I do want to mention though, Death House is coming out. Uh, Death House is coming out very soon. Uh, I I don't know the date. Do you? 
Yeah, the 23rd. The 23rd of this month is the premiere in New York. So I don't know if you'll be at the premiere or not. A lot of people will be there, though. Yeah, no, I won't be. Are you? Are you? Uh, I've been asked a bunch of times. I'm I'm going to, I would like to. It's not that far from me in Massachusetts. Where's the premiere? Uh, In New York. Oh, it is? Yeah. So it's like four hours or so. I thought it was in California. There's two of them. There's one in L.A. and there's one in New York. In New York City? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, and a bunch of the you know a bunch of the people are gonna be there. Can you talk at all about your character? Some people can, some people can't. Well, I guess I since uh, since the director put it on as real, I guess it's okay to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's his favorite uh, one. It's his favorite kill in the entire movie. Uh, oh, oh, really? Well, that's what he said. You know, I don't know if he was lying to me or not, but. Uh, it's pretty cool. They actually, you know, they, they showed the clip on uh, YouTube or whatever, Facebook or something. So I, I'm not really uh, talking out of school, but uh, my character is called Prison Leader. You know, Kane Hodder plays this character. You know, the the whole setup of Death House is it's a super, super secure uh, facility that houses the most virulent uh, serial killers and criminals of all history. And uh, Kane, you know, plays a uh, arch criminal who's trying to transcend from human into supernatural. I guess is basically the way to describe it. And uh, he's gone through a bunch of shit, shit in the movie. And uh, I hear a ruckus on my cell block. I hear all my uh, all my boys, and uh, you know, in the uh, cell block raising hell. So I come out to find out what's going on, and Kane's standing there talking to them, and that ain't gonna go down in my, you know, in my in my house. That ain't going down. Mm-hmm. So I go over and we have a little confrontation. <laughs> oh wait, oh no, wait, Neil, damn it, it's been so long. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'd forgotten. Uh, I repeat. Let's rewind. Yeah, I hear, I hear, you know, everybody on the cell block raising hell so I come out to see what's going on and there's Kane laying in a pool of blood you know on the on the cell block floor and uh I go over to you know check it out and he's been wired up because he's such an arch criminal he's got these uh uh subdermal explosives wired into his body and <laughs> You know, and there's uh, trip wires that are connected to his handcuffs. So if he tries to move his arms too much, he'll, you know, blow himself mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, anyway, I, I grab the chains and I pull them, and his guts explode. <laughs> I think I, I think I'm the baddest son of a bitch. In, you know, I'm, I'm very uh-huh. proud of myself. I'm standing there gloating. You know, with his guts hanging out of my, you know, a handful of guts hanging out. Uh-huh. And you know, I, and that just shuts everybody up on the cell block. They're like, and they're freaking you know, out, total awe. And uh, I start walking away, and what I don't see is Kane. His eyes snap open, and he starts putting his guts back in his body, <laughs> and he stands up and starts talking. And I freeze in my tracks when I hear his voice. And I turn around, and we're mad-dogging each other. And then we get closer and closer 
and closer, and he's talking the whole time. And I hope you can. You you see my my iron will, my my steel countenance breaks, and my lip starts trembling. Because <laughs> I'm freaked out. I mean, I just pulled this yeah, guy. Yeah, of course. Out. Right, now and he's, he gets back up. Yeah, yeah. he's talking to me. So he, uh, he judo chops me to the neck. I go down. He jams his fingers into my eyes uh, and his thumb, in, you know, under my under my pal uh, my my upper palate, and pulls my face off. <laughs> very cool. I'm very. I'm looking for. It's weird to say I'm looking forward to seeing uh, getting you're getting your face pulled off, but I'm very. I'm looking forward to seeing this. Well, like I said, you know, it's Harrison's. According to Harrison Smith, it's uh, his favorite kill in the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, what was he like to work with? He had him on the show. He's, he seemed like a very good guy. Oh, he's a great guy. I really dug him. You know, I look forward to working with him again. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, you know, Gun. The, the movie was originally Gunner's idea. Uh, Gunner yep. Hansen. Did, yep. uh, uh, did you? Were you involved at all when he was involved in the movie, or was it was it after he passed away? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know, uh, you know, Gunner was even working on it. You know, yeah. and Gunner and I were pretty good friends. Uh, but I hadn't, you know, spoken to him about it at all. Mm-hmm. So it came uh, when the movie started to come to, you know, get together, mm-hmm. it came as quite a surprise to me that it was, you know, Gunner's story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned being friends with Gunner. Do you have a, a story with Gunner that stands out to you? Jeez, I don't know. He, when he visited Los Angeles, he would he would come and stay at my house. So we would we would call it when he was there. We would call it the House of the Leather Fi. <laughs> and you know, we'd always have Gunner and is another trencherman like you and I. And so mm-hmm. I'd always, you know, I just I have I still have this uh, really good steak recipe I make. I call it uh, Cosmo Cowboy Steak, and it's. Good, Neil. It is good. <laughs> that sounds I, very good. Yeah, so when Gunner would come and, you know, stay for a few days, I'd usually invite a you know, few colleagues over and we'd you know, have steaks and drinks and cigars out on the veranda. Yeah. That's very cool. So, uh, two leather faces, uh, eating some steaks. Huh? <laughs> I said two two leather faces eating some steaks. That sounds like a nice time. Yep, it was. It was. Yeah. It always was. So, yeah. Yep. So I know you have a. Yeah. I, I actually I was uh, um, very friendly with him uh, from the conventions myself and have a lot of uh, nice memories. Uh, actually, one over over food. We were both stranded because uh, we both live on the East Coast in the same area, and there was a big storm, and uh, the, we were stranded at a convention when it was over. And uh, he bought me Chinese food and just uh, kind of took me under his wing and told me a lot of things to look out for in the convention world and. It was a really nice time that I always remember. He's a very uh, stand-up guy. Yep, Gunner was a good guy. Yeah. So yep. I, I know you don't have a lot of time here, so I've got a lot of stuff that I'll ask you at a later date because I know I'll run into you again, and uh, I, I would like to ask you about wrestling and, and some of your other movies that are coming out. But uh weekend, you'll be at Charlotte at Mad Monster Party in full makeup. That's going to be really, really cool. But you'll be there the whole weekend as well. Uh, it's gonna be a really uh, good be time. There. Yeah, I'll be there all weekend, and then the photo op is Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that'll be yeah. Anybody interested, they'll give them you know uh, the opportunity to book, book a session, and 
and let's get her done. You know? Yeah. And it, you know, it's awesome to get a, a photo op with you at all, but it is really special to, you know, in the full makeup, that's uh, almost like a, you know, once a lifetime deal. Yeah. Now, uh, I don't know what I was going to say. You know, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm looking out the window and there's a strange vehicle stopping Uh-oh. in front of me. Uh oh, we better we better let you go. Maybe somebody's no, up there looking no, for you. No, no, it's just it's I don't know what it is. But anyway, back back to business. Uh, Mad Monster, and all the links will be on the website. Everyone, can, there's actually a giant link right at the top of the website, so you can just click on it and find out all your information. Yep. So yep, but yeah, this will be the first time I've been to Mad Monster, and I think probably well since we uh, previewed uh, Smothered. Smothered. Yeah. Yep. So I'm looking yeah, it, really. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. This will be my first time uh, back at uh, since then too, because I got uh, really sick and I couldn't make it. And so I'm looking forward to uh, being back at Mad Monster. It's actually always one of my favorite conventions, and uh, I'm glad you're going to be there because you're always one of my favorite guests. And not just because you're on here right now, and not just because you're an intimidating man. No, Neil, we always have a good time when we're <laughs> hanging out together. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, smothered was a lot of fun. Huh? Smothered was a lot of fun. I like yeah, to see yeah. a different uh, side of you. I thought you were a natural comedian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, that's what some other people say too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was good. I really I, there's an interview up where we talked about it, but uh, no, I thought it was a lot of fun to uh, to see in that in in uh, another role and uh, playing yourself, but I assume a caricature of yourself. Yeah, I know that was pretty funny, huh? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But, uh, yeah, I like working with Schneider too. Schneider's a great guy, John. John Schneider, mm-hmm. really, really enjoyed working with him. Hope to work with him again too. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, was that the first? When was the first time you met Kane? Because I've seen you with Kane uh, conventions. You guys are very uh, uh, funny together, going back and forth with uh, you know jabs, but obviously that you guys are having fun with each other. But uh, it seems like you guys have a lot of chemistry. Oh yeah, yeah, we have a great stick, and uh, the fans seem to really uh, enjoy it. But the first time I met him was uh, when we filmed Texas Chainsaw Three. He was he was the stunt coordinator. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, so is is that when you first became friends, or was it later at the conventions? Or it was more. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we, we you know we spent a little time together. Uh, doing the movie and stuff like that, but we really didn't start hanging out till, uh, you know, the convention scene really kicked in. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, whenever we're at a convention together, we have a blast, man. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it was, I think it was Connecticut or Rhode, Rhode Island, uh, no, last, Rhode Island year. last, uh, last year, almost yeah. uh, just about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. That was my first convention back after being sick. And, uh, yep. just, uh, I wish I just, I don't know, maybe you guys don't wish I filmed it and put it up on YouTube, but uh, <laughs> there was a lot of funny stuff back and forth uh, but between the two of you. That was that was entertaining in itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, people really like it. People like it. You know, I mean, we do. We have fun. We try to, you know, we try to uh, bust each other's balls, one, you know, one-up each other. Uh, uh-huh. uh, and uh, it's just a lot of fun for us. Yeah. Yeah, that was a cool panel too. It was uh, it was a fun panel. I remember uh, David Naughton being really like out of place, but it was it was funny at the, at the same time because everyone's like talking about like their favorite kills in the movie, and he just kind of looks over and he seemed like, you know, why am I here? But uh, it, it was, to me, it was very funny. It was kind of awkward, and then it was cool to find out that you and um, 
I think I played Billy in uh, in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Had uh, had a history together outside of movies. I know, I know that 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 blew my mind, man. I, you know, never would I have expected to run into him on a panel. You know, twenty five yeah. years, thirty years later, or whatever yeah. it was. You know, yeah, that's pretty awesome. All right, well, yeah. I'm gonna let you go so you can you find out who's outside. And oh, I, I know you're a busy guy. It was FedEx. <laughs> oh, FedEx. Sorry. <laughs> I got I got all. I got all uh, defensive for nothing. I guess FedEx is okay. Uh yeah. Well, I guess it depends what they're bringing. Well, unless it was, you know, unless it was, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a government, you know, a government spying on me and just using the FedEx truck as a uh, disguise. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, uh, I'm gonna let you go so that you can get. Uh, I know you got a lot of stuff to do, and uh, I will oh, see I'm, you. I'm like you, Neil. I'm, I'm packing and you know wa- yeah. doing lawn, getting everything ready for this coming weekend. So. We're both in the same boat. Very cool. Well, I look forward to seeing that. I look forward to seeing a lot of people listening to the show tonight. All right, Neil. It's always good to talk to you, brother, and I'll see you down in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, good to talk to you, you too. Okay, buddy. See you in a few days. Yep. See you, man. Bye. Bye. From ancient terrors to the search for modern-day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. What if we should have listened? Sitting here on a lie. Sitting here on a lie. Sitting here on a The tomb of Nick Cage. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. Hey there, this is Marshall Hilton, and you are listening to Nasty Neil on the station of decapitation without your head.com. Go get him, Neil. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by Patrick McGee, writer and director and star, in a way, of Primal Rage. Coming out Tuesday's 27th Fathom Events. We'll talk about that in a minute. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Honestly, I love Primal Rage. Uh, I always, I'm always interested in Bigfoot stuff and a lot of the movies, eh, but there has been a few good ones the last few years. But Primal Rage, I thought was uh, was tremendous. It was one was a big surprise to me. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, there's um, definitely a, a big fascination with Bigfoot in general, and um, it's a tricky, uh, you know, tricky subject matter. Really, uh, every seems like everyone yeah. has your Bigfoot. You know, very, very neat. Yes, I definitely. When I set out to do my kind of my take on Bigfoot, the whole purpose was to make it uniquely different, and you know, it the the movie's version of what what I think a Bigfoot could be or should be. Or... Now, is your take on Bigfoot based on any, any legends that you know of, or is it kind of a combination of things? How, how did you come up with your version of Bigfoot? Um, well, there's the, there's the kind of traditional lore that people have for Bigfoot that I think is, you know, your generalized version of what people think of Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or a Yeti or any kind of hominid is. 
And then specifically with mine, I um, tried to get into as much kind of Native American versions of mm -hmm. Bigfoot. And, uh, and then kind of from there, I mean, I had, I, I've spent well over 10 years on this film, just in development, just kind of tinkering around with the idea of making the, the creature itself and then developing the screenplay. And it just kind of evolved, um, from, you know, one kind of elementary level of what I would think a Bigfoot was to, I just kind of added, kept adding things. And, uh, then when I added my uh, co-writer Jay Lee to the mix to help me really uh, draft out a nice screenplay, I mean, man, he he brought a whole nother element to the to the Bigfoot, which we call Oma, um, and just kind of added layers to where by the time we finished it, you know, it was a whole it was, it was a lot more uh, to it than I had originally intended. Cool. Now, oh, is the is Oma something you guys created, or is that a real legend? A real day of term for Bigfoot. Oma's a real legend. Um, I can't remember the name, the, the, the tribe, the specific tribe that calls that their specific Bigfoot Oma. Um, so it, it's a real name of a Bigfoot type being. Um, so there's some truth there. Uh, other than that, what, what he looks like and what he's doing in the film is pretty much completely original and made up and a combination of a lot of different things from films yeah. past. Now, now, were you were you yourself always interested in Bigfoot, or was it something you started to uh, get into when you decided to make the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I saw, of course, for me the the first Bigfoot movie was uh, Harry and the Hendersons, <laughs> uh -huh. and I, I was really getting yeah. into. Yeah, I was really getting into makeup effects and monsters and liking how all that, you know, how the technology that worked and they, you know, it was big in the eighties and that movie came out and, you know, it's a family fun film, but just beautifully done. You know, it's kind of the quintessential Bigfoot suit and it's just so expressive. And so that really caught my eye as far as what, you know, about Bigfoot and, you know, that kind of character. And then coincidentally, um, that summer, summer of 1987, I think it was that early June, I think Harry and Henderson's came out. And then just a couple weeks later, Predator came out <laughs> with, uh, another cool, you know, biped creature. Oh, and, uh, nice. it was like the one, two punch of those two films, I think has always been in the back of my head. And I always felt this kind of need to combine the two you know with uh with predator kind of hunting evil creature mm -hmm. that uses technology and weapons and tools and then obviously the traditional you know bigfoot the your furry hominid creature and i kind of felt like i've always had that in me as a little yeah. to try to find a way to combine the two mm -hmm. it's funny i actually mentioned to uh to marshall that when i watched uh, the movie i definitely got uh, a predator vibe to it not that it's not like a derivative of Predator or anything like that, but it definitely has, you know, that kind of vibes, like you said, uh, especially with the hunters, you know, the, the hunters uh, being hunted. Yeah, big, big time. The, the middle act is very much Predator. Uh, I'm very aware of that. It was on purpose. Uh, a huge fan of that movie. That uh, I'd switch it up, do it a, a little bit differently, in different circumstances, but it, it is without a doubt uh, an homage to Predator. Yeah. Uh, and then it. Ha go on, I'm sorry. No, go for it. 
I was just say about uh, about predator and hunting. Do you have a view on on hunting itself? Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I do and I don't. Um, I know uh, personally for me, I, I don't hunt, and uh, I could see it. I could see hunting as a means to an end, as far as uh, you know, t- kind of what the title of the movie is. You know, it can get primal. And uh, if you're going to, you know, hunt for, for fun, I don't, that doesn't fall into my, my uh, liking necessarily, just because it's personally something I don't think I could do. Mm-hmm. So with my film and with the, the group of hunters, I guess, consciously or subconsciously, I kind of designed it the way I did to have things turn out the way they do with our group of hunters. It's kind of uh, my nature's revenge film, I guess you could say. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, that is a kind of a fine line there with hunting and, uh, you know, if you're going to hunt game and, and, and use the animal for, um, you know, for to eat it and use it for all of its, uh, all, everything it brings. I'm all for that. That's fine. Yeah. But, you know, I'm kind of foot in foot out when it comes to hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I would actually be on the, the same, the same, uh, way there hunting for, you know, sustenance or, uh, or uh, even to use the things like tools like like uh, like the Oma does in the movie, uh, like I said, just hunting for sport or for uh, trophies. I think that's a different uh, a different thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I like that in the movie too. Just kind of the role reversals where you have the hunters and then uh, they become the hunted. And also, I think uh, with uh, people where it's kind of like you would think they're civilized and uh, throughout the movie, they have to become uh, wild or, or brutal themselves to, uh, to try to you know, survive this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's the, the small character arc is, uh, you know, civilized as I think we are. Um, we're, we're a few situations or circumstances away from, again, kind of fall back to that set title primal. I, that's kind of how I came up with the primal rage. I, I know it's uh it's an old arcade game, but the word primal just kept getting thrown around so much. I was like, I got to find a way to use this in the title. But uh, that's just it is, you know, you're thrown into some circumstances and, and the elements are are at you. You kind of become, you know, everything gets stripped away from you. You, you literally be, become a primitive being. And it's, that's like the, you know, the way to survive. It's your, it's your last way to survive. And, and that's what it takes for, you know, the, the characters become the ones that at least make it near the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't, you know, there's a lot of things in the movie, like I just mentioned, you know, that you can uh, look past just the Bigfoot, but I also want people to know the Bigfoot itself is awesome and uh, very brutal kills. All the effects are amazing. I assume it's all practical effects. Yeah. That was, that was the driving force. The big motivating factor for me originally was, um, to just kind of develop my own film and, and, and throw as much practical effects in there as possible and have, have control over a, what, what we were being asked to make and then uh, B how they would be utilized and then C ultimately, cause it's always disappointing when you work on a lot of movies and you get through A and B and then they, you know, an editor gets their hands on it. Next thing you know, so something's cut out and all that and, and you're left with nothing. And, I I wanted to kind of go through all the motions to have total control. So, uh, you know, I answer your question. Everything was 
practical. I do have I do have some, an amazing visual effects supervisor, and uh, there are I think I ended up with seventy digital effects, mostly mm -hmm. two dimensional imagery used for signage and atmosphere. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a little bit snuck in there as far as uh, helping aid the practical effects. You know, I, I, I'd like anybody to find out where it is. I mean, it's hidden so well. But uh, mm -hmm. I definitely still use digital technology to my advantage, uh, but, but in a very small way, limited way. And, and that, was a, that was a whole other approach to making this film and approaching it from a practical effects standpoint. It was more about just being practical in general. And uh, the, the films I, I grew up with, the films I'm a fan of, um, were obviously practical effects films. They didn't have, uh, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. They didn't have uh, digital effects. They had visual effects. But um, I feel to kind of fall back on um, the strengths of the limits of practical effects and really realize as we would set up shots and, and use certain camera moves and techniques or whether it be someone getting shot or the OMA suit itself is to really realize that the limitations of the practical effects could be to our benefit. And I think, you know, we've all heard the story about Jaws and the shark not working and then so it becomes a fin and sure. all that kind of stuff, you know, benefits the movie. And so I really, really wanted to make sure I didn't uh, just have tons of carnage and gore and just do practical effects to do practical practical effects but to actually capitalize on you know limits of it and then to kind of hold back and then with the edit be really minimal with it as well as far as what we show even though i think we probably show a lot <laughs> yeah definitely and uh there i for me just uh watching uh uh practical effects there's uh, something about the weight i don't think you can ever duplicate in uh with uh with a cg it's even if you know aren't aware of it, I think there just seems something off about it. Like the weight's not there. Yeah, and that's a that's a constant conversation, and um, and it's getting there. And sometimes it gets there too too well for me. It makes me really nervous when you watch these new Planet of the Apes movies. Um, right. But I think the the other thing though, from a producing perspective or even just a director's perspective, is that this type of story needed to and easily warrants being told with, you know, old school practical effects, a guy in a suit, you know, that's what the story I think mm -hmm. deserves. Uh, I think too, it, it doesn't, I don't think it would do anything better if I had, you know, millions of dollars to spend on super high end, you know, digital technology to make a computer generated anything. I, I don't know if it helps the story. It wasn't, wasn't what we yeah. were, I was, you know, intending to do. And, and mm -hmm. it also, Without a doubt, what was what was just really cool was, you know, we shot up at the the Oregon California border, and when you're in a Bigfoot suit, and then you're in that awesome <laughs> environment, I mean, it's right uh -huh. there. So there's no de no denying he exists in that moment. And so mm -hmm. for all the performers, when when they meet him, you know, it you're in the environment. He's right in front of you. There's no not too much to make believe. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how did you find that area to, to, to shoot in? Did you have to search for a lot of different places? It, it was a small evolution. I lucked out. I had a coworker, um, actually film another fi movie up in that area. And 
she had sent me some pictures knowing I had had this project. I'd already started developing this project and the pictures were amazing. And uh, so I just set out, I think it was just like the year after those pictures when I had some free time and I went in the, in the new year when the weather was crummy and I went up and I just scouted the place for an entire week. And it was like sold instantly the minute I was there and then did a little bit more research and found out, in the particular area where the Redwoods were, this is where they shot Return of the Jedi with the Ewoks. And then they had shot uh, a lot of the forest for E.T. And, and then a few other movies, I, you know, the new um, Jaden Smith movie, I think uh, M. Night Shyamalan. is all that kind of look of the woods. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, and I think they do a lot of car commercials up there, but I, w- I was sold the minute I was up there. The size of the, the trees is just amazing. Yeah. Now, I know when I talked to Marshall, he said that you had had planned uh, for it to be like raining uh, when you did the when you did the shots. Is that true? And uh, kind of like we were talking about earlier about the with the practical things, you know, maybe not. Sometimes if something doesn't work out the way you thought, how did that change the movie at all? And was it for the better or anything? Yeah, an- another one of another another film that's a big influence or at least on the look and, and some of the characters is uh first blood the the first mm-hmm. rambo movie and uh i just love the look of that forest and how wet and cold it was and um they shot that in canada i didn't have enough financing to get get us all the way up there uh-huh. but every time i went purposely to go scout at this location i went in january and february and it was of course always rainy and wet Mm-hmm. And so it looked, looked that part. And we even took the, the creature suit up there and did some test photography in there. And, and it was nice. The weather was nice and behaving poorly and, and gave us that great rain look. And then go figure when it came to the year to actually go shoot. Um, <laughs> they had a record, uh, I guess you would say a heat wave where we were 72, 75 degrees and you know sunshine and it, i hadn't been there like that in 40 years there and for the months of february so that i mean you got to just go uh we had long lunches essentially the forest made a great kind of canopy over everything mm-hmm. which was another reason we were there but uh between you know 11 and 2 in the afternoon, 11 a.m. and 2, you know, the sun was just hitting out and we get all this hard light coming in through certain areas. So I really wanted to avoid that in the look, especially because we had shot some stuff already and we had lucked out on some overcast days. And I just really wanted to avoid any hard sunlight coming in. So we took like long lunch breaks and shot like crazy early in the morning and then shot crazy in the afternoon, late, late afternoon when the sun was, you know, taking the corner and, and the light was nice and moody in there. So it's just one of those things you you realize you gotta you gotta deal with, <laughs> there especially is. when you're outside in the elements. Uh-huh. So, so a lot of people might not notice uh, know this because I didn't know until I talked to Marshall that you also play uh, Bigfoot in the movie, and you just mentioned it was 75 degrees. So, how hot was it in the uh, in in the suit? Yeah, that was another big decision. I, you know, it took me so long. I was financing the the build of the suit itself, and you know. I only had so much time um, to invest into it, you know, each month of the year. So I realized quickly I'm, I'm six foot eight and I played, I played, uh, I played a predator before and a couple things. And oh, cool. I was actually the predator in the, 
like the teaser trailer for the first AVP. And so I've been in some suits and I played zombies before and done that. And I just started to realize, you know, I think I got to build this thing on myself because I'm the tallest person I know. And I'm, I knew I was going to be the most available <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> when needed. And then, um, yeah, I thought for sure, hey, when we get up shooting and it's nice and frosty cold and it's raining, I'm going to be in this nice warm suit while everyone else is freezing. And of course, well, the weather became warm and that wasn't the case. So I was just cooking in there. <laughs> so that was fun. And that was really interesting to obviously I knew it was, it was going to be another big hurdle. And I had to explain that to some of the, you know, the performers is that yeah, we got to stop the camera, rewind, and let me look through the monitor and let me see what certain takes were. And that was the most trouble was, you know, being in the the suit and directing and then, you know, watching (laughs) other people do what they're doing was fine, but I was getting really upset with myself. I would see how I would do a certain move and like, oh, wait a minute. Okay. I'm doing this all wrong. And so some of the longer takes or multiple takes were actually on the Bigfoot itself because, I'd actually watch what I was doing to then correct myself. So that made it, made it fun, fun and interesting. (laughs) So like, uh, from being the Bigfoot to director, um, I I guess you kept most of the suit on, but what were, I, I guess you had to take some of it off. Like how how did that work? Just like physically. Well, it literally became, you know, you don't see him much for most, you know, most of the movie, there's mm-hmm. just certain scenes where you see them a lot. So we would schedule it and I would, you know, so I would basically be prepared for out oh, today. I had a couple long suit days. And when I went in, I'd stay in and I didn't, li- I don't like taking things off and then letting them get all cold and they're, they're already wet from sweat and everything. So I don't like taking things off and then you know, an hour later, putting it back on. So I, I typically just left everything on the whole time, even with the, the contact lenses. So I, I, I'd be able to see, though, flying through the mask and all, and then look at the monitor. So you'd have, you know, it's real easy to make Bigfoot a comedy <laughs> comedy movie. And, you know, I could probably edit a whole comedy version of this film based on outtakes and certain things. But, yeah, I, I directed entire scenes with the whole suit on and, there's Bigfoot pointing to the left and pointing to the right and looking at the camera monitor and coming around camera and barking orders. And you're kind of getting a muffled sound through the mask. And that's just kind of the way you got to do it. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. So, uh, so when you're d- developing the suit, um, I, cause you said you, you weren't, when did you decide you were going to play Bigfoot? I know you kind of went over that, but I would think when you're designing the suit, do you have to have someone, uh, to to put it on while you're making it, or is it made that it would it wouldn't have to fit someone, you know, the exact size? Yeah, the the, the original intention was to make when I started out with this film was okay. I want to make I want to make a cool Bigfoot. I want to do everything the way the proper way, which we would consider proper in in the effects business, and build underlying muscles and have multiple gloves and different heads and all, you know, it takes a lot of time to do all that and put all the hairs in individually. And I originally had designed him first with miniature stuff and had the intention of not wanting to wear it. And, uh, but I didn't want to compromise on the height. I wanted to find somebody really tall. And honestly, a lot of the great creature performers, they're not super tall guys these days. They're not the Kevin Peter Hall that was in Predator and Harry Henderson's. Not that I would have had the budget or, you know, to, to acquire somebody like that. Maybe I could have, if they were, you know, as a, as a favor. 
And I quickly just realized, you know, hey, I'm six, six, eight. I just got to do it on myself. And hey, when I'm trying on the glove, I'm right there. I can try it on. So I started with the head and hands and built it piece by piece. And then, yeah, when you're done with all the elements, I basically had to turn to my crew, which I had a crew of four constantly, and they would uh, help me get in this thing. This thing fits so snugly and tightly. You know, you got to zipper up the bag with a corset built into it. And then a zipper and snaps, and you got to you know snap on the head, and then the, the way the hands going and the feet. It takes a, definitely takes two people to get get me in this thing, and it took you know up to thirty minutes to get everything snapped together and put in properly. And then we had certain parts on the mask where they're um, servo driven with little motors, so you got a battery pack coming down off your neck into the hunch of the suit, and you got to jam those in there, and you're switching out batteries, and it's a it's a lot to do. And having done it. And already, you know, I knew it was a lot to do getting into it, but really having done it, you know, it's very apparent why there are not a lot of Bigfoot movies. (laughs) It's because it's a real pain in the butt. You know, it takes a lot of time to make it and it's a lot of time to just manage it and handle it as far as the special effects side of it. Yeah. Uh, For the, for like the camouflage, you know, like I don't want to give a lot away from the movie, but the camouflage is awesome. And uh, are, are those two different suits, or is the camouflage made to go over the uh, the actual suit itself? Yeah, I um, I wanted to get away with one suit just because so much work. But then when we initially uh, did the test, I did some test stuff in it. I realized all the camouflage started rubbing on the suit in certain areas, and so I realized I needed a second suit. Um, granted, the parts come off and on like they would any kind of the way they look. Um, and that was an evolutionary thing too. I, I actually had zero intentions of doing anything like that. And that was actually the co-writer Jay Lee's idea. idea. He, uh, I remember him sending me pages and I remember reading you know, this elaborate description of his intricate, you know, flora and all this plant stuff and everything all over his body. And I, I got really upset because I was like, damn, now I got to make all this on top of the big <laughs> So I kind of took what he had, which was very elaborate and kind of streamlined it to keep it a little simple. And then I, you know, I resisted it at first. And then after more thought, I thought, well, we'll give him a mask. That's kind of cool. And then, it, you know, it kind of falls in that predator category. And then I could, you know, without giving too much away, the way it's designed, the way he's able to manage it, it, it kind of works to where, wow, he can blend in. And then it just instantly kind of snapped and thought, you know, that's what kind of elevated the the thought process on the, our, our take on Bigfoot is that it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, yeah. I, there were moments where you blend in and it's like, you have no clue something's there. Wow. Yeah. They're smart enough to be like that. Um, yeah. I was so going to say, it, 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 uh, makes, it makes sense with the legend itself because, there's always a part of it is, you know, uh, if it's so big, why can't people find it? And then you have the camouflage. It just kind of yeah. adds a level of uh, actually realism to the uh, to the character. <laughs> I think so. And it's kind of a why not? It just started to it just started to make sense to me and gel. And it just made it made it cool. And then it kind of fell into that. The, again, that predator vibe. Yeah. A new take on it. So mm-hmm. but I, I really um, I really like that idea of um, a monster wearing a mask and then the mask can come off i mean that's always worked well with all the slasher films and obviously some other monsters i think that's kind of an it's just a it's a traditional idea but it's a neat idea yeah yeah i like that too um where did you meet jay lee how did you uh how did you get in, uh, how did you get to work with him 
Uh, I met Jay Lee. This is a long story, um, but I was working. Everything kind of is connected. I was working on a film, and the director um, that I was working with on that, I ended up going to his house on the weekend because he was doing a side, like a little short film. This is when iPhones were blowing up big, and he was doing little 60-second shorts. And I went to his house to discuss something, and there was a gal there that saw my portfolio and said, hey, I know uh, I have some friends that are making a small horror movie like in two weeks or 10 days. And would you be interested in helping? And I thought, I'll give him my number or I'll call. And I ended up meeting um, Angela Lee, Jay's sister at their place. And they had a production company and they, um, Jay had done uh, his main thing at that time. He had, I think he had directed a film. He had done some shorts for sure, but they were a company that did uh, short reels for new actors and would edit and film and do, you know, they do fake scenes and stuff to help new actors get their, their reels going. And so they had accumulated all these contacts and all these performers. And it got to the point with them where they were like, Hey, let's just, we're just going to make a movie. And so I, I came in and helped them on their first horror movie and did a bunch of blood and guts and quick stuff, you know, fast. That was like 2005. And uh, they sold that movie quickly and it went to blockbuster video. And then from that they did, uh, he got zombie strippers and wrote that and then helped with that. And so I, you know, I've known him, 13 years now and uh he's done a couple other movies since and he's always helped me and he is he's great he's one of those guys you know i've worked on a lot of i've worked for other big companies on big films and been on a you know a few really large sets which are amazing and i've worked on a lot of independent films and kind of middle of the road films and jay was one of those guys kind of a triple threat where and I was really impressed quickly with, you know, he's writing content and then he's, he, he shoots his own stuff and then he edits as well. And then he is the director and uh, he really picked up quickly on um, what practical effects were and what kind of took. And, and a lot of directors I think are hit and miss, but he was really quick to understand how, um, you know, a practical effect, you know, no matter how much you plan and rehearse, sometimes, you know, you just got to shoot it a bunch of times or try different. You got to just kind of figure it out. And it's not a, okay, we're going to put the camera here and it's going to, the head's going to do this and then we're done. And we just, we're going to do two because we have two heads. It, it usually never just works that way. And I, I found out really quickly that Jay understood that and was like all about experimenting and trying and giving, you know, giving shots an extra, an extra try. So we, we just kind of, I think, bonded really quickly early and always got along and kind of had the same mind frame. Um, and so he's always, he's always, uh, we've always worked together. And so when I presented him my project, he was, he was uh, all, all on board. And that was great because without a doubt, could not have pulled off this project, especially being in the suit without having a guy that's so familiar with the content who co-wrote it and then have him be the DP. There were so many instances where it was like, I just had to look at him and go, we got it, we got it, but, you know, and this, that, and the other, he, he really covered me. So he's my, definitely my right hand wingman, back pocket, everything. He's the true, true backbone to this project as well. Yeah. Now let's hear your first, uh, first uh, feature you directed. Did you direct anything before that, like shorts or anything? I haven't directed anything official as far as short. I, I would consider myself a, a mini director as far as dealing with effect sequences and scenarios or scenes within a, you know, within films. Um, you know, when you, you know, develop 
certain gags or setups for for films with effects you're kind of you know you're a director in your own you gotta understand how how to how things cut and what's going to work and what's not so um i have yeah i haven't done anything i guess officially at all as far as a director's reel other than this film so uh going into that uh what were some of the things I assume just, you know, watching other people direct on movies, you pick up certain things. But what were some of the things uh, that you didn't expect once you started doing it that, that may have been uh, harder, more challenging? Well, yeah, I've watched a lot of directors. Um, just paying attention a lot got me into this. And then, uh, you know, every everything you can get your hands on. I, you know, I've listened to a lot. You know, you listen to a lot of directors' commentaries on other films. Uh-huh. And I actually, I read, a, I read a ton of books, the, just every and any book that's been published on making films and directing really helped a lot. Um, definitely. I was, uh, I was shitting bricks first few days just to make <laughs> sure I knew how to, you know, like when we just to shoot a scene that didn't have any effects, that's where I was a little nervous. Cause like, okay, all right. There's no, no fake that's body. Like there's no world, really. Uh... Yeah, you know, you're so used to showing up on set with the big, cool, fun thing, and everyone gets excited on set for that. But it's like, no, we're just going to shoot a talky-talk scene right here. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, just really kind of analyzing all the films I like and styles and approaches to certain looks. And again, we referenced Predator and First Blood and all these, you know, big A movies. But even, you know, smaller movies, just trying to kind of fall into what I, as far as the style that I liked and then uh, just being prepared for that. So um, it, it seemed natural. It definitely seemed natural. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for people who don't know, I know you referenced a bunch of times doing special effects and makeup on another movie. That's what you, you did before uh, uh, directing Primal Rage. Um, how did you get into that? I know you mentioned Harry and the Hendersons, you know, watching. Is that really the movie that, like, inspired you to pursue, like, uh, uh, work in makeup and special effects? I um, I grew up at a time, I grew up in where movies of the, you know, I, was, I think I was seven years old and I saw American World from London mm-hmm. on HBO. And uh, I kind of fall into the... <laughs> the greatest transformation <laughs> scene ever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, I, the, the concept for that movie is really interesting. And that movie really, really caught my eye of a young seven-year-old. I probably saw it a little too young, but I'm kind of this, it's almost a generic story at this point for a lot of effects people my age within that five-year bracket where we all saw American Ruff Lennon and it kind of just captivate, captivates you at this right age. And then it's followed up by thriller and then making of thriller. And that's really kind of steals the deal where it's like shows and explains everything that's happening and how they're doing it all. So it's like kind of wrapped it all up in a bow and the president would just hand it right to me. and was like, okay, I really like this. And I found it as uh, it was just a hobby. I was always really into drawing monsters, just like any other kind of monster kid. And after a while you realize all I'm doing is drawing monsters and making stuff out of pie dough. And when Halloween would come around, you'd grab anything you could get at Halloween time. And then in my teens, I realized I got into the Fangoria magazines and all that. Then you see ads for suppliers of special effects stuff. So then it was like, okay, let me get a, let me buy, let me get a, this is back when you pay you like $3 and you get a catalog for (laughs) effects supplies. And then I'd read all, I'd study the, the catalogs for supplies. And then, 
be brave and bold enough to spend whatever money I had on certain materials. And then just realized by the time I was in my late teens, um, I think that this is a profession I think I need to, to go after. And I was, I'm six, eight. So I was also always um, played basketball a lot. And I went to college. I did two years of college and I got a scholarship and basketball was kind of always the, the forefront runner for me as well just because I could get, you know, I had schooling paid for me and I ended up dropping out just to pursue uh, my real true love, which was this makeup effects. And so I had had, by the time I was 18, 19, I realized I had had kind of a st- uh, built my own portfolio at that point on my own blood and guts and a couple masks and even some fiberglass things. I know the, the Tom Savini, those, he had these grand illusion books. Those were a big influence on me as well. With those, I uh, came out to L.A., and back then, this is when you would just look in the yellow pages and look up special makeup effects in, in the in the valley, and uh-huh. I think there were 10 shops listed, and I know I went to one of the shops that sells special effects, and I said, hey, so I'm new here, and I, I got this stuff, and I want to start, and they, I showed them my list, and they said, you should go try Screaming Mad George. So I basically called Screen Matt George, who's kind of a he's a he's an old icon in the special yeah. makeup effects world. Um, he goes back to Nightmare on Elm Street Four with the cockroach scene and the old Boss Film Studios. He did effects for Poltergeist Two and Big Trouble in Little China and Cocoon. So anyway, I started there and I started working with him, and that was actually uh, 20 years ago. That's pretty awesome. So uh, I remember those. The, the I had a Tom Savini uh, uh, book when I was a kid. I remember it was. It told you it was like cornflakes or something. Was uh, how he did like uh, I think the the the, uh, the father in uh, in uh, in Father's Day in Creepshow. But uh, yeah, he uh, texturized. He had sculpted like the skull type mask, and then he just started adding latex and cornflakes or Rice Krispies, and then he <laughs> weeds and whatever you can get your hand on. And it was a, yeah, yeah, those were great books, and it was a great. He has a great mentality as far as you know. Do what's again, do what's practical, and it's kind of like yeah, let's just go get some weeds. He would be, <laughs> you know, covered in weeds. We'll just go get weeds and glue them on. Nothing's gonna look better yeah. than that. <laughs> yeah, when I, I'd interview him one time, which is, was uh, you know a huge, uh, huge thing for me to interview Tom Sweeney. And I always remember he said something which I always thought was cool. He said, uh, before like when you were learning to do this stuff. Before there were just like you know ways how you do whatever that was the most fun he had was just like discovering new ways to make things like that like you know finding rice krispies to put in something. Absolutely, and um, we've kind of gotten away from that. I mean, that was what was I think so fun about that time and then movies of that time um, is you're kind of always put in a bind where you're challenging yourself, but that, that what's make things fun and interesting. And sometimes the simplest things are like the, you know, the easiest way to solve problems, but it, you're, you're constant, you're in a constant problem solving mind frame. And unfortunately now everything's just so processed where it's like, Hey, you know, and that was another, I mean, that was actually probably my number one motivating factor for doing this film or a film in general was I just got so frustrated with, okay, here's our script. 
and here we go and and then you read it and then you know here's the next slice and here's this it's kind of prototypical thing and then here's ten dollars and we're, we're shooting it next week and it's like well this that's not right this isn't fun and this isn't you know there's nothing there's no uh-huh. new challenge and that's kind of where i'd gotten with so many things is that you know everything can, is getting kind of checked in and those days of kind of really pushing and trying to do you know discover some new things or twists and turns and then you know, push with practical effects, you know, now, I mean, it is easy. And I don't think I didn't do anything on this film where, you know, you can have a, a green arm or a green rod or some green or blue would, would be in my case that you can digitally remove things to help. And, and I'm all for that, but um, it's just a mind frame that goes with it. And it's apparent. You can see it in those olden films, which I think are looked at so fondly compared to some of the new flashy stuff now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned some movies uh, uh, already that you liked, but uh, what were what are some of your favorite horror movies? Well, American Werewolf was the one that really mm-hmm. caught me. Um, I love Predator. Uh, I love Alien and Aliens. That's a constant battle, and I love the Howling. It's kind of funny with effects people or, or film people in general, and I think it just comes down to timing. You used to be able to ask, okay, the Howling or American Werewolf in London, and you'd usually get to, because you know, someone would have to choose a side. And I obviously uh-huh. I lean on American Werewolf in London, but I love the Howling too, of course. And then I love Aliens a little bit more than Alien. You're in, they're totally different, two different styles of movies. I love mm-hmm. Predator. Um, another one I saw when I was young, and it and it's always stuck with me, and it's an odd one is um, Psycho Part Two, the sequel. I think it's a very underrated movie. Um, always like that. I love all the classics, the Halloween, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Fog, um, all those classics. Um, I, I love the original Psycho as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all those kind of throwback movies that they keep, we're, we're still talking about and remaking. And <laughs> right. Remaking sequels, sequels right. Yeah. Right. Rebooting. Direct sequels to the first one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, I love um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola. I think that's that's a great movie if you just watch it from a practical effects standpoint, not just makeup, but the way the camera tricks and illusions and everything is in camera. It's such a phenomenal movie to watch and realize that they they handcuffed themselves and tried to do as minimal as they could without uh, computer imagery. Um, I think that's a fun film. Yeah, my favorite um, part yeah. of that is actually. The- the beginning with the shadows uh, when he's in the castle, when he's the old Dracula. Uh, yeah. Just, and it's there's so cool. About yeah, how the, the, the... <laughs> yeah. It's got a retro vibe and they're like little cutouts and they're, you know, there's people underneath that stage just jerking around. It's just, it's a, it's a vibe and a feel that you, you get. And um, yeah, it's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when you're doing primal rage, uh, how hands on were you for the casting of the movie? Well, I mean, I was hands-on with Kathy myself. <laughs> um, well, right, right. as the as the script developed, you know, it it became so much more than originally intended. I wanted the movie to be um, just about a couple. Then you realize, well, there's there's only so much you can do, and I wanted to utilize more of my skill with special effects, and you know, you need a body count on these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And so the whole element with the hunters came in and um, when it was all finished and written, you just kind of, you break down, you're like, okay, eight hunters. And you look at what each one of them's doing. And then um, 
you know, I had known most of all those guys. Actually, I think I, I absolutely, I know all of those guys when I was developing the project with the exception of Marshall Hilton, the, the lead guy. Mm-hmm. So I had known all them from other projects. Uh, a couple of them are uh, effects guys that I've worked with for years. Another group are improv actors that work at Universal Studios, where I'd done a lot of projects there. And I knew they would bring it. And they were all live improv actors. So I knew um, they they could add so much more to it. And I also, having known them for so long, I knew they'd show up on my little limited budget. And I also knew they'd show up after a certain period of time from uh, molding them and making all the reproductions of them a year in advance and then saying, Hey, remember, you know, we could do your hair this way. Like we had planned it that way and kind of having enough time to prepare that. So for this project, I called in every single favor of, you know, at that time, 17, 18 years of working in the business, I called on everybody and said, this is the plan. And it was a favor after a favor after a favor. So all most of those hunters and then the guy in the, the, the grocery store, Matt Harold, I had known him. Uh, he's, he's a big comedy actor. Uh, and then my two leads I had known for several years as well. And um, so I, I kind of knew everybody and was able to place them as we wrote. And then uh, basically did a traditional casting for BD for Marshall Hilton. Mm-hmm. And even he, he wasn't uh, coming, deciding on him wasn't, he wasn't the exact look and feel I was actually going for, for that character. But when he read, um, he sold me. I said, that's our BD. Um, he kind of took it in a little bit different direction than I had originally intended. And so he, he won his, his position real well. And, uh, he, he does a phenomenal job in that role. He's got a lot of, he's got a lot of, he's got a lot of say in, in that position. Mm-hmm. And then um, the other element, uh, the other kind of secondary story with the, the Native American element was the, the sheriff and the deputy. And we did a full on casting for them. And I looked at a lot of people. We hired a casting director for their, those two positions. And I looked at tons and tons and tons of people for both those positions mm-hmm. and uh, lucked out with both with Eloy Casados, who's I don't know how many he's got to have at least 70 credits, but he goes back to like white men can't jump and a lot of character roles in in older films. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then with Justin rain as the deputy, um, he just really stood out in the pack as far as all the people that we're looking at for that. And turns out, you know, he got uh, fear the walking dead since then. So he's kind of taken off. He was on the TV (laughs) show defiance. Uh So he's a, he's got himself a little niche going. Yeah. So the, the native American aspect, um, that wasn't originally part of it. When did that come about? And like, uh, who, whose idea was to add that to it? Was it yours or Jay's or a combination? It, it was always there. I always knew I wanted to, to present, um, Bigfoot with, a a native, I guess you could say legend background to it. Mm -hmm. I actually, I grew up, um, in Vancouver, Canada, for a good chunk of my youth and was always kind of surrounded by native culture. And I remember doing field trips and always seeing this stuff. And I remember, um, you know, every kind of culture has a, what they call a hominid, you know, a two-legged beast. And, you know, if you're in Asia, they have, you know, in the snow, you got the Yeti, you know, everyone has a name for it. And I remember 
hearing something about Oma, and that was the the native name for for the Sasquatch. So I'd always kind of that was always intended to give it that background history, but to take it to where we did was not the intention because I wasn't sure about how to do it. And again, I only knew what my resources were at the time. So uh, Jay Jay brought a lot. Jay did a lot of history. Jay definitely added, he added the peyote uh, sequence in the film and got me connected with Jackie uh, Neiman Jones, who really helped with that. And I guess you could say was a consultant on the peyote scene and how that whole element works. And then really, really contributed to the, to the Native American element as far as making, you know, helping with that legend with what that Oma was. Mm-hmm. No, um, for the layer of the Bigfoot, where was that film? I assume it was a different location than the rest of the movie. Yeah, I, sh- I got to shoot that locally. We shot uh, the layer um, in L.A. And that was a set that was built and uh, resurrected just for that. You know, I try to find the... That's the other tricky thing about being an artist is you get so stuck in your head. I'd drawn what I thought the cave needs to be. And I I found a couple local things, but they were too big. I just couldn't couldn't see past what it was they were showing me and I wanted to have a fire in there and do a lot of fire stuff. So I realized I just had to make this thing. (laughs) So that was built locally. Yeah. It looks awesome. All the, all the different little, a lot of details in it, which, which, uh, you know, adds a lot, obviously. There's, there's a lot. There's unfortunately, there's a lot more that in there that you don't see as soon as it gets dark (laughs) and and you cut your movie. It's like, we, you know, we shot so many inserts and I realized this is not a movie called inserts, (laughs) but there's so many things in there. I wish that, that were, that you could see that you just don't. Yeah. On a a personal note, I do want to mention uh, my uncle Barry passed away uh, just a few weeks actually before I saw this movie. It's too bad because he's a huge Bigfoot uh, fan. And I heard the story a million times back uh, when he lived in Pennsylvania, when they were kids, uh, my grandmother told the story. They said they think they saw a Bigfoot up in the mountain, and uh, him and his brother, my other uncle, they went up and found the the cave where they were where he was supposedly at, and they heard something, and then they ran home and and uh, <laughs> didn't go back. But it would have been I would have liked to watch a movie with him and for him to see the layer of, uh, of the Bigfoot and I would have asked him if it was anything like uh, he remembers. Yeah, well, that's another thing too. It's again, you know, when you you look at the history of these Bigfoot movies and you, or you start thinking about Bigfoot and everyone has their ideas of where they live, but you've never really seen one, I think, in a film. So I thought, oh, it'd be cool to show like some cool kind of secluded, hidden cave lair where one, one of these guys might be. And that's something I don't, I'm sure has, but I had, I don't recall seeing a specific place where they've lived, at least set up the way he is. I mean, he had a good feng shui in there. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what what about like the making of the actual the, the the tools like uh uh how how does that how, how does that go about what are like the th- the thought process um very primitive well you know there's a, I don't and you know in this trailer I, they don't show everything he can do so I don't want to announce too many of yeah, what he's got yeah. but uh. Mm-hmm. I had I got books on Native American weapons. I got a couple of really cool ones on um, fighting techniques and weapons and all the certain Native American tool making things. And I basically approached it that way. And uh, there were some really cool museums I went to. Some of them I bought. I got this really awesome 
blade, real obsidian blade for a knife, and then the handle is a real uh, jaw jawbone from a wolf. Mm-hmm. So I bought a couple of these things, and then I had seen some of these other things in museums and just kind of took pictures and replicated them. Um, and basically, kind of, you just kind of hand make everything, just like a primitive cave tool. Just you know, I approached it kind of like Predator at the end, where Schwarzenegger's been making those uh, unre- you know, unnoticeable weapons. He had his certain mm-hmm. things he was making there. I was like, I just could approach it like that. That's what he maybe do. Yeah. Um, now I did. Yeah, all of them look sweet. Was it to say? Was I did not watch the trailer. I went right into the movie without knowing pretty much anything about it besides the basic premise. So I don't know if there's. I don't want to mention it, but there is another uh, um, kind of a supernatural character in the movie, and so I don't know if that's even in the trailer or anything. If people would know, but uh, what was uh, uh, when did that come about? When when was that added to the story? Well. We're talking about her, her. Yes, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That she came in a little bit later, and um, just kind of developing the script and the basic outline, and again, just reading a lot of movies on script writing and paying attention to the movies I liked. I realized um, a lot of the films I really like and enjoy in general, they always have these cool secondary characters show up in the end of the second act that were kind of out of nowhere. And it was like, who's this? And it, they're typically were usually a cool looking character or something like that. Yeah. And um, again, I, you know, I just realized oh, what would be an interesting little twist or another added element. And then of course it ends up being a, a big effects one to where uh, I thought, you know what, this is, I'm going to try this too. So uh, the person I cast for that role looks nothing like her, and is somebody I've known for years as well. <laughs> that's I, I remember good. that's good for that person. I, I, yeah. yeah, it's good for that person. But I remember uh, <laughs> talking with Jay, and he's like, he suggested her, and he's like, yeah, for yeah. And I was like, are you sure? And he's like, I know performance-wise, she can do it, and she did. She nailed it. But uh, it just it was another layer, and I, you know, I think to make it a little more cool and interesting. And then it's still, um, I'm very aware it's a throwback to some other characters in that same vein, to some other classic uh, horror movies as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, no, I'm not in, you know, the most original territory at all, but it's a new twist on something we're all familiar with. And I try to, ha- I try to have her uh, do, do things differently, this character we're talking about. Yeah, I was a big fan. It totally works for me. I, I think she's fun and, and it's, it's, yeah, if you don't watch the trailer and if you're not prepared for it, it's almost a, whoa, who's this? What's this all yeah. about? <laughs> it's really, if you can watch a movie without ever seeing the trailer or really know much about it, it is the best way to watch a movie, I think. It's fun just to go in and not know anything about it. And you're, you know, you're totally surprised. Absolutely. But that's incredibly risky these days. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. yeah, it's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're going to go to the theater and stuff. By the way, the theater. Uh, the Fathom event for it on uh, the 27th. Can uh, can you explain what people will, will get out of that? Because it's not just the movie. Yeah, we're, you know, it's funny. I screened this thing a year ago on a big screen, and I'd seen it a couple times before on a big screen, and we got a really good, uh, the, the music is phenomenal. I got to mention Kerry Torgerson. I always butcher his last name. He is a phenomenal composer, and I really lucked out with the composer on this film. Between his score and the sound design and watching it play big, I, uh, you know, 
I was really impressed. And I thought this movie might actually do well on a big screen. Like it plays really well with the sound. And I'm very fortunate to get this Fathom event release. And um, what they're doing with that is you obviously see the movie. um, And then when it's over, we did, we edited together a 15, 20 minute little making of reel to kind of hit some quick bullet points on obviously mostly the practical effects and performance and shooting in the elements and just gives you a quick behind the behind the scenes look. Um, so that, you know, it would be a, like a little featurette on your DVD essentially is what you're getting. I'd love to do something a little bit more elaborate, which I think we are for the DVD release or even digital release. We're going to do a, a bigger version. I think the film warrants that we have so much behind the scenes to do on that, but mm-hmm. you get to see a good 15, 20 minutes after the movie. That's and there's a couple of cool. stories. Mm-hmm. There's a couple other amazing stories. Um, just most of this film was shot. I actually have four separate years of footage in the film, but for the most part, it was shot within two years. We shot in February of 2015 and then February of 16. And there's an interesting story in between that, between one of my lead actors. And I'd actually leave it at that and say, you're going to hear, go, go see it in the movie and hear the story. Cause it's really amazing story on this guy's journey to, to um, real life live and mm-hmm. interesting decision he had to make for his, his own uh, certain living I guess you could say situation based on an accident he had. Oh, wow. They're interesting. And there's something special uh, for me. I think most people love movies about seeing uh, on the big screen. It's right there in front of you. And you mentioned the sound. I think uh, a special movie like this, that would definitely add a lot to the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, we went out, we went out of our way to get and shoot it in this awesome forest with big trees. And it's, um, I tried to work in as much kind of pretty scenic stuff as possible. So visually it feels, it looks big, feels big. And then yeah, to hear it with the proper sound, uh, I highly encourage it. Um, again, I'm, I want to say I'm my worst critic and there's a lot of things I can cringe at, but (laughs) just seeing it play big, I, you know, just the sound alone and and some of the visuals, I, I was, I was very, very, very pleased with, uh, the work done by, by those those members of the the crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, if uh, I'm not this, I hope this. If there's too much spoiler, let me know. I'll edit out here. But uh, just for people who are into uh, effects and gore and everything, for me, hands down, the best uh, face rip scene I've ever seen in a movie. Yep, that was uh, that was number one um, kill on my list. It, I've always been fascinated with that. There's a whole new twist on that taking it to the next level, I think, uh-huh. where it's like stage two. Yeah. It's a it's a throwback to the old King Kong movies and all the kind of beast movies that, that have been out there through the years. And um, I think uh, that was, you know, if, if you're a fan of horror movies and you're a fan of carnage and stuff happening, if you can't like, if, if you can't appreciate that, then I failed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like I want to say, cause I, there's probably that just likes that, just the gore and the, the craziness, but it's also a good movie. So it's, it's a, it's a best of both worlds. Oh, uh, great. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, how can people follow uh, you and follow the movie online? I, I'm a big fan of Instagram, 
So I'm on Instagram as McGee FX, M-A-G-E-E, like Maggie, Maggie, McGee FX. Uh, I post on Instagram quite frequently. Uh, Primal Rage Movie is on Instagram. Uh, I don't do much on Facebook or Twitter, even though I probably link them all from Instagram, but Instagram is my big one. And then Primal Rage Movie on Instagram as well. And I know Primal Rage has a Facebook page that seems to be moving pretty good right here. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And uh, yeah, do you, um, anything, uh, would you ever revisit uh, the movie? Would you ever do a sequel? Or possibly a spinoff, I guess. Oh, absolutely. You got to watch what happens. I mean, you saw it. You saw you saw how this thing ends. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping something happens here, and I would love to. I've I have so many more ideas. Um, you know, again, requires requires a few more dollars, but I, I would mm-hmm. I would love to further this uh, story. Cool. And yeah, not just because you're here. I I really did love the movie. And uh, I'm, I look forward to your future projects. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing it. It's been great. I got 99 zombies out of which ain't fun for my life. Run, run, run. There's no time for twisted fun. I got 99 zombies out of which Monsters in his bed Who carry wounds you most? But I 
Hey, you. You're listening to youwithoutyourhead.com, and this is Michael Berryman. Don't touch that dial. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Nicholas Tana of Hell's Kitty. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good, thank you. So Hell's Kitty is going to premiere February 2nd at TLC Chinese Theater, uh, then on the 23rd, I believe, uh, at other theaters. Yeah, no, actually, it's just the one-off right now on February 22nd. It's a special event fundraiser we're doing for uh, the nonprofit Fix Nation. Um, oh, and it's going to oh, be a fun cool. time to kick off uh, kick off the release of the film before our March release. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. So uh, where did the whole idea of Hell's Kitty come from? The whole idea originally started from my experiences for real in Los Angeles trying to date with a cat that's possessed and, um, well, <laughs> possessive, I should say, rumored to be uh-huh. possessed, <laughs> um, and, uh, and was very uncomfortable with it. And, in fact, Lisa, who plays Lisa in the film, uh, we basically reenacted the first scene of her meeting the cat for the first time uh, when I had her come over. We, she was a friend, actress, and we went on a few dates, and, and uh, that was like meet the cats, you know, instead of meet the parents. <laughs> and. We added a little bit more blood to with poetic license, but uh, basically it was a reenactment of that scene. <laughs> uh huh. Now I know in in the movie, it, you know, it says uh, "R.I.P." to to the uh, to the real cat. Um, is the cat in the movie this cat that you're talking about, or did did the cat pass away before you started making the? No, the no, the cat cat survived through the shooting and passed okay. away afterwards, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, she, she that's the okay. cat. That's my cat. That's my cat angel. Yeah. And in fact, the oh, film's okay. a tribute to her now, um, as uh, as as uh, um, a dedication to her. She was really special. She's the James Dean of cats. She was written up in <laughs> Catster magazine while the series was still going on, and <laughs> okay. she even had some fan followers who created some pages. I think there's an army, uh, Angel's Army page on Facebook that was created by a fan, and um, people really loved her. And uh, yeah, she scratched some of the most famous people in horror, so she, <laughs> she really is probably one of the most famous cats. Uh, um, it was so weird because as I'm talking to you, just as we were talking about this, and I'm and I'm totally serious. This is not a put on or some publicity thing. <laughs> I have this little meow cat um keyboard thing that we used with the to make some noises during the killer clown scene and uh-huh. it just meowed it just i didn't touch it i'm walking around my apartment it just there's no one else here it just meowed i don't know if you can hear it in the track of your playback but that was not anyone touching it, it was so weird <laughs> yeah. so, uh, i am sorry that the cat passed away i'm self myself a big uh a pet fan and uh i had a Cat for over twenty years, and it was it was very sad when when she passed away. So, uh, how old was 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 Angel? Angel was ten, so it was a little younger than I expected. I mean, I guess it's possible at that age, but um, but yeah, she we're not even sure what exactly it was. We're, it was some form of a lymphoma, we think, and yeah, it was it was sad. It was just afterwards. It was almost like she was she was sad that there was no more filming <laughs> because <laughs> afterwards she just started. It was probably about a week later she just started uh, getting sick a lot, and it, it gradually increased over a period of a year, and I was taking her to the vet constantly, and it was tough. But I learned a lot about that, and, um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, interesting. In fact, the day she passed away, um, it, 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 there were fires in Los Angeles. Um, there were fires. I don't know if you remember the fires that actually went over on the highway. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually caught fire. Some cars caught fire. Um, that was, that was the day she passed away. And then the next day there was like an extreme rain. It was like super, which was great for us because California is so dry. Um, and, uh, it was just, it was just wild. The whole, the whole experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you did for the, the, like the first episode for the web series before you make it into the future, um, what were your plans then? Like, did you want to do X amount of them or did you, did it kind of grow as you kept doing them? Yeah, well, no, I had I had it mapped out in my head. In fact, I have a whole second season mapped out in my head too um, that continues oh, cool. it. But but um, but basically, what I did manage to create um, was the first season. I just never released the final episode online, knowing that mm-hmm. I would I would probably reskin it, like they say in the gaming world, uh, where you take the platform and re, you know reskin it to make another game. Well, I was going to reskin it as a feature film to um, paste it together and then add some footage you didn't see as well as um, give the final um, ending or denouement, you know, from that was never seen. Um, And uh, it actually serves, it's really cool this way. It serves as its own standalone piece, so to speak. So if you, if you, you like the web series, well, you're, you're never going to know how it wraps unless you see the movie. And if you like the movie, you're going to have to go and see the web series because there's scenes that didn't make it into the movie that give you some extra um, bonus, um, understanding into some of the other characters. So, so that's, that's kind of like a world building, which I'm really into the concept of building whole worlds out. Um, and I think where we're going with virtual reality and things, I think you're going to see a lot more of that kind of style of approaching storytelling. Mm-hmm. How did you get all the different, uh, you know, you get a lot of huge, uh, names involved. How, how did they come about? Well, it, um, I think the first was Nina Hartley because she had appeared, in um, one of my other, my previous film, my documentary film, Sticky a Self Love Story. And, uh, and then I knew her from that and I kind of pitched her and she was like, yeah, it sounds great. So an opportunity to do some, something comedic and different. Um, and so I got her on board. And then after Nina, uh, I think the first person was Michael Berryman. Uh, I reached out, kind of got a hold of, uh, I think I met Michael Berryman at an event at first, but then I, then I reached out to his manager and talked and sent the script and we went back and forth a few times, but, um, but she, uh, she loved the script and he loved, loved it as well. And he likes animals. So that was a good, um, match there. And, uh, and then after that, he had such a good time. I mean, his, his manager, um, Judy Fox was like, let's show this. Um, I want to show this around. And she kept like showing around town. And I think to, to kind of show his ability in comedy, um, and, uh, that led to his endorsement and then other people at, at some point I was getting calls from people saying, I, I want, what can I do to get my, my clients in Hell's Kitty? And, and it, it kind of became that sort of thing. And then I was literally writing in roles to match talent that I wanted in the project. Um, yeah. so yeah. So, uh, I mean, That's initially that's a pretty scene, awesome feeling. I think. Yeah. Oh, it totally is. Initially that scene with Courtney Gates and John Franklin was not necessarily in the original <laughs> script, but, but, um, but it, I, I thought it had to be in there because it was just so fun. And then the concept of having these guys from this period when they were kids, you know, as adults, what would they be doing? You know, <laughs> they survived. And, and, uh, and I thought like, yeah, they'd probably be like Bible thumping, you know, pushing salesmen or something to the extreme and really scary. And then, and then, but what if they came across, 
someone who had this cat and they'd never believe it. You know, what a great way to get rid of them, you know? And I, I just thought it was so fun. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely one of my favorite, uh, cameos or, or people in the, in the, uh, in Hell's Kitty was uh was uh Courtney Gaines and uh, and John Franklin there it was great. Was this? Do you know if that's the first time they worked together since uh since um Children of the Corn? I probably should know this, um, but I don't. I can't say definitively. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't say definitively. It might be. Um, yeah. and I feel like I did know it at one point in talking to Courtney and John, obviously, but. Um, but I can't remember. I, I'm sure a quick IMDb search might find something there. But, but, uh, but I know Courtney was, I believe he also, this was way when he was younger, but he appeared in one of my favorite filmmakers' films, Joe Dante's film, The Burbs, right? And so yes, he, he's the man. And that was, yeah. yeah, and that was a comedic role too. And so um, John Franklin wasn't in that, but he was in Adam's Family. And in fact, some people might not notice this, but there's an allusion to that, his character, Cousin It, in there. Um, it's uh, you, you can hear right before I answer the door um, as Nick, uh, cousin it sounding, you know, from the other side of the door. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of fun. No one's mentioned that yet, but know. there's tons no, of things know. in the film. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't notice that myself, and uh, yeah, I knew that he, he played the role, and I always thought his character in um, it in, uh, in Children of the Corn is Isaac is uh is like a, a villain that you really can't even root for because a lot of villains in movies, I think a lot of people, horror fans, like want to root for, but he's like so annoying in Children of the Corn. Not him himself, he's a great guy, but uh, his character is so annoying. He's one of the ones like you, you just can't root for that guy, Isaac. Well, totally. And if you look at, I like playing with their characterization, right? So you have this almost guy with like a Napoleon type complex, you know, okay. commanding this other guy who's like his henchman. And and I thought, well, how would they really feel, you know, if these guys are stuck together for years, you know, and they'd have this brotherly almost fight. And uh, and I, I love I love the dialogue between them, you know, just letting it letting each other have it. And then, of course, in the end, Isaac seems to uh, um, manipulate, um, you know, the, the, the Isaac's character. We, we, Isaiah, I think we call him in our story, but yeah, he tends yeah, to yeah. Man, manipulate him to go check on the cat first. <laughs> There's this little fear there, so and I love that too. I think it's fun to uh, to see that and to play with that. And of course, in the scene, Courtney Gaines' um, his character, yeah. he 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 was able to do some music. He's also a musician. Yeah, he rocks out. So uh, I wanted to kind of highlight that. And yeah, you know, like part, that there's musical elements to the story too. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you uh, speaking of music because uh, that was awesome too. That you know he's playing another guitar and singing. But uh, you have a music video out. Yeah, we do. In fact, it's been getting some press lately, too. Um, we released it recently, and um, it's the original song Chainsaw Kitty, which I co-wrote with the composer who did most of the songs in Hell's Kitty, um, Richard Albert, who's from Germany. He hails from Germany. We worked. He was a fan, actually, of the original show back when it was called My Pussy's Possessed, um, and he... We changed the name because of Nina Hartley and the association with porn. We were like, okay, we, we can't have this, so we moved yeah, it to you. Hell's Kitty. Um, and then, uh-huh. and then he he came on to work as a sound designer and then composer. And then we created, the, we started writing well together, and we created Chainsaw Kitty, which which actually was originally written for a scene that never made it in the movie with Lou Ferrigno. 
um, as the Hulk, and which yeah, <laughs> which the cat, the cat's claws were going to turn literally into chainsaws and and tear them apart. But <laughs> we never got to use that scene. But we did. Um, that was what Michael Berryman wound up playing that scene. And then we uh, we switched the scene around, and then we used the song as a um, as uh, it appears a few times in the, in the film. But during the the whole dance sequence with. Uh, um, Ashley C. Williams from The Human Centipede and Barbara Nikelzigo mm-hmm. from Hostel. We use it there. And then it's also, it's, I think it's used prior to that or, or after as a ringtone, too, in Nick's phone. So <laughs> That's pretty sweet. Uh, do any, did any of, the, did any of the, the, the people ad-lib anything about their characters? For the most part, they stuck with the script, um, but there, there were a few nuances here and there that, that um, got ad-libbed. But uh, but yeah, actually none of them pop up now. Um, then again, it's been it's been we wrap production on this. It's been at least a couple of years now. And then by the time we 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 chose the right distribution deal, so so yeah, I um I can't remember to be honest. Um, but I do I, I'm not a stickler as a director where they have to stick exactly if sure. if the actors are are working well and there's there's a vibe, we'll we'll definitely um let them roll with it. I think that's more natural. Um. And but most of them actually really, I think the script was well thought out in terms of what needed to be done and what needed to continue um, in in the world. So for the most part, I think they were they were um, working with what they had on the page. Mm-hmm. Now back to the Chainsaw Kitty song. You mentioned that. Uh, did, did you say you wrote the lyrics or how to? Ha- yeah. What did you have? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have background in music all, or was it just something you did for the movie? Oh no, I've I've been a musician for many years. I used to be in bands. Okay. I was in band in Europe and Spain and in uh, and in New York and in the Connecticut area. Um, so I wrote the, I, I wrote how that started is I I had the concept. I wrote the lyrics and and kind of hummed the melody line and played it on an acoustic guitar. The basic concepts of the chord progression. Sent it over um, via the internet to the my co-writer. And he just had, he just went to town on it, you know, really developed it, um, made a few changes in the arrangement and then uh, recorded and produced it. And then he actually, him and it was his team that recorded and edited that music video, the black and white version of it, and then sent it back to us. We loved it so much that we had our editor of Hell's Kitty, Gustavo Sampaio, edit in the clips of the movie and decided to release it like that. And now this music video has like more horror icons in it than any any music video in history <laughs> for sure yeah definitely <laughs> yeah so uh back to the cat uh what what do you use for blood when, when the when the cat's involved because i assume you don't want to get anything that's gonna stick to the cat or, or the cat won't like to lick up or so, so what's used yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember what we were doing i think i think in some cases it was a mixture of water and maybe maple syrup um, but I know it was non-toxic and things. I mean, I wish that was really the, the art department and the, uh, and Masayosha, who is, uh, who is Masayoshi, who is the, um, he was from Japan originally did the awesome practical and makeup in our, in our film. It was just, it was great. Um, uh, in fact, he had been so active in, as a part of Hell's Kitty. And then I think it was hard, you know, it's hard in this, in LA, especially indie filmmaking. And I don't even know if he's, Focus. I know he was teaching it for a while. I don't know if he's done much since. And um, I'm hoping after this movie, now that it's coming out, he's going to find any work he needs because he's he's incredible. So, mm-hmm. so you, you said that. Uh, it was, so was it always your idea to make it into a movie eventually? Yeah, I mean, I always thought it was a possibility. I didn't know if I could pull it off 
to be honest. Sure. Um, so, but but in my mind, that was something I would like to do. And I, I know I made mention of it a few times, a bunch of times to uh, all those involved. Um, but I didn't want anyone to get their hopes up um, that it, that it was going to be a movie because I didn't know if I could even pull it off. And and then in editing it and trying to piece it together, there was a lot of challenges because you've got this um, story that would really be a super long film. I mean, that no one would sit down and watch. So you had to make really smart decisions in what to cut out. But at the same time, I couldn't give a lot of the talent major roles, pivotal roles. I mean, there's very few um, that had pivotal roles. Um, like Adrian Barbeau's Rosemary Carey was rather pivotal because she, she, she provided something to the plot structure that just had to be there. But, um, and of course I could have cast other people as some of the other talent too, but, but um, for the most part, a lot of their roles were more, you know, restricted to, I had them on set for a day or half a day and I kept it real run and gun. And so I, but I wanted the film to have all of them in it. So it was really hard to cut because I wanted to keep all of them in it, even though some of it might've been able to get cut out to make it the 98 minute length it needed to be. Um, and so that was a super challenge and, and it was well met by Gustavo Sampaio, who, who is an Emmy award-winning editor. I worked with him at ESPN years ago. We, we kind of went up the ranks together there. And when I was an associate, we were both associate directors there and, and um, he, I pulled him in and he worked with me and, he with a with a scalpel and a surgeon's precision. He just said, "Let's just start tearing this up." And it was hard for me too because I I liked a lot of the scenes and I, and yeah. I saw its value. So that was that was really yeah. hard. That was really hard. That was a that was a challenge. Yeah. But I think it was well met, and I and I'm actually proud of it. I think it came out um, really well. I think the pacing, for the most part, works really well. So, mm-hmm. uh, for something like that, do you think you have to have someone else come in and do the editing? Because, like you said. Uh, it's your own stuff. So you're connected to it. Uh, some of it may be connected to just cause you remember filming it, you know, uh, it's easier to have someone else edit it. You think than uh, then if you would have had to do it all yourself. Yes, it is. And usually I, I'm very active in all the parts of filmmaking and I'll often sit down too with the editors and edit with them. But in this case, I just stepped away and let him, I kind of gave him some ideas and what I was thinking. And, and then he mm-hmm. just, um, he just went at it and, and kind of did a pass. And then we went back and forth a few times with notes, but, but for the most part, I just let him go and, and do versions. Um, we did have an, an assistant editor who originally tackled trying to edit the piece together, Bob Canode. Um, but he was, he, he really is a fan of twin peaks and he loved Hell's Kitty series. And, and he just couldn't shop anything. Like I'm sitting there saying, we can't do it like this. We have to cut more out. And he's like, no, uh-huh. but you can't. And you can't. And so eventually I just had to bring in Gustavo, who, um, who was a little bit more distanced from it. He had cut some episodes yeah. as well, but not, not that much. And, uh, he was able to go and make some tough calls and, uh, I acquiesced on a few and then, uh, yeah, we finally got it down to the, the, the feature length we needed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when did Corpsey become involved? Corpsey got involved near the end, um, and it was for in a very important scene that that serves almost like the usual suspects. It becomes um, a narrative device to carry through and to really smooth out the edges um, on in terms of like piecing this together. And uh, and I really love the fact that he used to be well, he is a publisher. He was the publisher of, of Girls and Corpses magazine, but he was also a publicist, I believe, for Warner Brothers at one point. And so, knowing this about him and knowing his personality, I thought he'd be perfect as the uh, publisher 
um, in the in the film, and I don't want to give too many spoils away or anything, but sure. um, but yeah, I thought his role was 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 fitting. So, and he did a great job. Yeah, I'm right. really happy with his performance. I think he's I think he's uh, he's talented. Yeah, definitely. I was happy to see him. Uh, I have a lot of memories of Corpse at different conventions. Very first convention I was ever at, I was uh, uh, pressed for the first Days of the Dead. And he just came up to me and he's like, "Hey, uh, you would you want to f- film some girls making out in a in a body bag?" And I was just <laughs> like, um, "Of course." And then, then uh, the friendship was formed. Well, he has a unique sensibility, and um, uh, and he and he uh, jives well with with a, a, a part of mine as well. You know, it's that Mad Libs, um, <laughs> yeah, but the twisted grotesque. You know, it, it's it's funny. It's it's a lot of fun and. To some extent, Hell's Kitty has a lot of that too, so it worked well. Yeah. So, have you uh, have you screened um, uh, the the film version with a with an with an audience yet? Yeah, we actually screened at the Bram Stoker uh, Film Festival. We were invited to screen out there, and that was sort of the world premiere. And that was back um, in 2016. Um, I believe it was October of 2016. Um, and we had a great time there. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I met some great people out there as well through that. What a, what a great, interesting town too. That was in Whitby, England. And it was this Gothic fest going on at the same time too. So it was, it was a bit surreal and it was great. It was well received and I'd, I'd hope to do some more, you know, it'll be interesting to see it screened for the first time domestically here in the U S at the mm-hmm. Chinese theater this month on the 22nd. I think that's going to be exciting. Yeah. Um, I love screening there. We screened a, a bunch of the episodes there throughout. Oh, nice. And, and it, um, it actually won, uh, an award, an audience choice award at, at Holly shorts, which does monthly screenings there. Uh, that was back in 2015, I believe. So, so I've seen this, and that was another thing about seeing it evolve in front of an audience and episodically as we'd be mm-hmm. screening these theatrically and then making notes of that and deciding when we went to the edit the feature, like if we wanted to make any changes or, or, or change some of the pacing or, or, and things too. It was, it was nice to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Before, like, uh, you, you noticed that the fans were where people went to the screens, like enjoyed it. Uh, is it nervous at all? The first time you're going to screen something, you know, it's your, it's your own work. You don't know how the audience is going to react. No, hell yeah. It's, it's, it's extremely <laughs> nerve wracking. I mean, I, I think I'm a bit paranoid and OCD both combined <laughs> when it comes to anything that I'm doing creatively. So I, I have these, um, the fears that, Oh, uh, first, it's are people going to show up, you know, and then as the seats right. go up, even even my last screening, my film, we, we wound up selling out and had 80 people trying to get in. And I'm now my switch went from, OK, they showed up. Are they going to like it? You know? and, then, right. and then it's and then it's is the film going to screen from top to bottom or there's going to be some kind of glitch that ruins it. And and this goes throughout the whole time I'm there. And I remember once sitting next to a friend of mine. And it's funny because she's she's a therapist and she looked and she grabbed my knee and she's like, Nick isn't this wonderful? <laughs> and I look around, and I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> and, and that lasted for all of about 30 seconds. And I went back to being paranoid about the whole thing. So yeah, it's, 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 um, it's tough. I mean, one imagines how, how it would feel and, and what excitement it is, but it depends on your personality, I guess, if you're able to let go and enjoy the moment, or if you're constantly you know, thinking or in your head about, the experience and what you hope it is 
based on your mind's eye that that's that that could be horrifying <laughs> right so so well, especially yeah, something you're so you're so involved in obviously writing it directing it and uh then starring in it so you know it's really your baby yeah it is it, and, and it can be quite personal there's no doubt about that but at the same time it's fun and i think sure. people forget um entertainment in the end there's going to be people that like things don't like things there's going to be people that uh um, it, it j- jives with and it doesn't. And, and really that's in, to a large extent, that's very subjective. And uh, in the end it's, did it entertain you? Um, and if it did, then great. I, it, it did its job. Mm-hmm. Um, but as an artist or as someone who creates, you of course have to consider an audience, but I think you have to consider what works for you first, because you don't really know what other people are going to like for sure. Right. We're not mind mm-hmm. readers. And that one guiding thing is that is that heart, that thing inside that says, okay, this works, this is, this is right, this feels right, this is good. And the more you can tap into that and stay with that, you'll, I think you'll create something magical and it will find its audience. And then it's even more beautiful because then those that connect with it are actually in a way connecting with you. And I think all artists want to create so that they can connect in the end. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's the process like of, uh, uh, starring in something you're also directing? Oh, that's an amazingly challenging process. And I, I, and I love to perform, but I also really love to direct too. And they're totally different hats. They're completely different experiences, at least for me and the way I approach it. Directing is, is much more cerebral and removed. I need to be able to see the picture and watch and, and kind of get a feel and pay it more focus on, on, uh, on more of an omniscient view of all the things from the technical to the performance. And when I'm acting, I'm just one piece of the puzzle and I can't know. It's actually not knowing. It's not being aware. It's only being aware of myself. And because that's real, that's what people are. We don't know what the other person's going to think or say, and we don't know what's around the corner. So to wear both hats is nearly impossible. I think the only way I was able to pull it off were two reasons. One, um, it was in literally shot. A good number of it was in my apartment where I live. So it was, it was so real. Uh, two, the characters were so real. And Adam really was a neighbor of mine, and he, didn't, he never really acted before. And I think he came across as one of the most professional comedic actors <laughs> there at times. And, and, um, and he was being himself. I was writing it as Adam. I was writing it for him. And Lisa, again, like I said, she did put it on. We wanted to go for a little of the Cruel DeVille, a young Cruel DeVille kind of um, <laughs> over-the-top vibe there. But, but for the most part, there's a nuance of that in, in some of her personality, and she definitely brought her own personality to the plate there. So I think, um, I think you know, it, because it was so real on some level that I was able to flow with it and make both work. And then there was the practical, like there was no one else that's going to get near my cat. They would, she would have tore him apart and it would have been a real horror movie in a different level. <laughs> and, um, and so that, that was the only way we were going to make it. Mm-hmm. Now I had Bill, a uh, Bill Oberst on uh, a couple weeks ago and, uh, he had talked about, uh, you would like to do at some point, a spinoff of, of his and, and Doug Jones, uh, characters as, as the, as the priest, uh, could, could you see that happening? And then, uh, would you want to be involved in something like that? 
Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know what I want to do now, to be honest, I've been obsessing in my head about turning this into a musical theater. And in fact, (laughs) I reached out to a a, a musical theater company that's very interested already. And I just think that's never been done like this. I would love to do and being a musician myself and a composer, like Mm -hmm. I, I would work with Richard Albert. And I would just love to see all this talent coming back and more that I couldn't get. Like I couldn't get Robert Englum and I couldn't get Tony Todd, who I, who I kind of became friends with. Um, there was a scene that was just perfect that really happened that I could have put him in that involved bees for real, which was crazy. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just insane. And um, and so I wrote that, but he wasn't able to make it. Or, you know, it was, we couldn't come to terms with uh, with schedule and budget and all that. But he loved the script and the concept. So I'd like to pull them in and more, you know, everyone that's involved in more into uh, this world and create a whole musical. And I'm working with virtual reality and other people in in Hollywood um, for other things. I'd love to eventually see that world built out. It'd be so fun. It's like a gateway to other worlds. And it would be be a dream. (laughs) Real quick, what what are some of your favorite uh, horror uh, musicals? Horror musicals or horror movies or, or uh, horror musicals. Well, we can uh, do musicals. both, but first, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I like, I like, um, if you consider a little shop of horrors, um, you yeah. know, I, 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 I like that a lot. Um, I like, um, I loved what I saw the production of the evil dead. I don't know if you've seen it in Las Vegas that they did. It was very off Broadway. I, 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 I very much enjoyed that. I thought it was great. Um, I, you know, those, those, to come to mind um, right yeah. off the top. So, but I don't know if there's that many, to be honest. I mean, now that I'm trying to think of no, all. Yeah. Now that I think about it either, there's like Sweeney Todd. So there's not, yeah, there's not, a, there's not a ton of them. I guess. I know they did the reanimator. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And I haven't seen that, but that's true. They've been, they, I guess they did that, yeah. but I can't speak to that. So. Yeah, I saw the little shop of horrors actually in uh, the actual musical in the theater uh, in California when I was like 16, when I was up there visiting my aunt. I forget, oh, okay. the, I forget where it was. It was awesome. I mean, I love the movie, but uh, to see it in person, it was uh, it was pretty awesome. Well, there's one I really like, too, if you consider it a horror at all. Um, and it's Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, ah, I yeah. Think, I think that's a lot of fun. It's 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 it plays with it's really campy, but cool. And the music's fun and danceable. And it's you know, when that first came out, it it, it, it got some pretty nasty reviews. But. Uh-huh. But it wound up it wound up really growing with an audience and finding the people that that identify with it and it and it's still I, I can't imagine they ever fathomed it it lasting this long like <laughs> yeah. coming plays every just, night somewhere yeah it's just incredible right I don't know if there's a yeah. movie that exists that has that kind of those kind of legs and that kind of uh, lifespan um, just mm-hmm. amazing yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah. That, the, uh, I mean, it's got horror right in the title, so of course it's horror. <laughs> yeah, but as far as uh, films, I mean, I I run the gamut uh-huh. in horror. I, I I hate a lot of horror. Like to be honest, like uh-huh. most films I see, I don't like. I, I think they're just they fall flat, or they're just um, they're just gratuitous uh, or formulaic, and it just doesn't interest me, you know. And I'm not into the horror of that that has characters that are pretty much all evil, and there's no one that I can identify with at all in terms of any kind of redeeming quality. I'm just not into that, you know, style mm-hmm. of uh, horror. So, so there's, there's a lot of films I just have no interest in, but, um, but then I think there's, there's so many great ones and I try to pick the ones that inspired me or push the envelope in some way. 
And um, I tried to create an homage to all of those, like every single one of them in one film. So from, from something like a Rocky Horror Picture Show to a, to a something as found footage, paranormal activity to, to some of the classics, you know, of horror, you know, anything Stephen King story-wise, um, to uh, Psycho, which to me is a horror film by one of the greatest directors, Hitchcock, you know. Yeah. So, so I, I try to put in all those elements and um, in, in one film um, and uh, create almost a world and a game for filmmakers because I think there's too much boring stuff out there right now. And I wanted to create something that you really can't play on your laptop and watch it at the same time. You will miss something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you're, you're forced to engage and probably watch it more than once to catch everything. Yeah. And I won't name, name any names, but I get a lot of screeners here from, from doing the show. And uh, like I said, a lot of them, uh, you know, either just don't finish or I wonder why it was made. But when something's like really, uh, really entertaining, like you said, for whatever reason, either uh, it could come through like everyone involved is either having fun or passionate about it or it's just uh, really well. For whatever reason, it's it's fun to, you know, tell everyone to, to check it out. And uh, I thought Hell's Kitty was was uh, hilarious and a lot of fun to watch and hope people check it out. Cool. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I hope people check it out, too. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to spoil anything, but I mentioned Bill Obers. But uh, the 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 sequence with Bill and Doug Jones really is my favorite part. And there's a, I have a lot of favorite parts, but uh, and I don't want to spoil the joke because I thought it was it was a perfect line. Please don't. I'm sure someone else will. I'm sure someone else will. But you know that what you're game, what you're getting at is wordplay, uh-huh. and I love wordplay also in 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 that world. Uh, you know, playing with that. Um, Adrian Barbeau does it a lot too. Later, if you recall, in her scene with all those mm-hmm. phobias that she refers to. Yes. yes. And, and and there's there's one particular phobia that she refers to, which I didn't even know existed, and I had to go find that, which is actually a reference to her role in a short sequence in a, in a, a series of short um, films. I'm not going to say anything because I'm gonna, someone's got to figure this out. <laughs> and no one's figured it out yet. It's like those Easter eggs, like the Ready Player One eggs. I planted a bunch of them in here, and I'm so curious who's going to be um, keen enough, smart enough, or, or um, have, have a, you know, a, a strong enough eye on this to be able to find the all of them and and I, no one's really found <laughs> close to everything that's in this film yet so sure. it'll be interesting <laughs> well when when they do discover things like that what's the best way to, uh, to tell you hey i found you know so and so yeah post it or find. i'm pretty findable on social media my name is my first and last name of nicholas tan is, is the only one in any of the social media that i found so far so that's pretty cool um, and you can, you can send messages. I'm sure you can find me that way or info at hellskitty.com still gets messages. Um, and if you're a writer or journalist or blogger, uh, write about it and then, um, and then send it <laughs> along so I can see it because I would, uh, I'll, you know, uh, kudos to you if you find it, I'll, I'll promote that out. Cause that's, uh, yeah, I like, sure. I like when people, people do that. <laughs> yeah. So I know this is a, after Angel died, did you get another cat? Because I know myself after my uh, Faye died after I had her for for so long, it's hard to get another one. Yeah, no, I haven't got another cat yet. Um, it's it, I'm waiting. Angel is special. Angel came about in a special way too. Um, it was very very interesting. Her mom was basically 
I didn't know she was pregnant for sure, but she was very sick mm-hmm. and dehydrated and came to my doorstep. And then I fed her and she disappeared and then came back days later and then fed her and then she disappeared and came back. Um, and so I called her hope. It was like, you know, this thing that comes in and out of your life, but you have no control of it. <laughs> and so I, I, I named her hope, brought her in. I was still hopeful that she wasn't going to have any kind of like feline leukemia or AIDS um, or anything that alley cats can get and then pass mm-hmm. it on to her kittens when I found out she was pregnant. She had Angel. Among, she was a litter of three. And the day Angel was born, in fact, this is true, too. I mean, this is you go mm-hmm. back and look at it. It, it. The bank around the corner from my house was robbed. Oh, wow. And the reason why I know that is I was videotaping Angel's birth and realized I needed to move some money around or something. It was like on a Saturday morning. And I raced to the bank, did it, left my bank card there, and then raced back and started taking video. And then I called the bank, realizing I left my bank card. And they were like, hello, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, hello. And, I'm, and then all of a sudden, we can't talk right now. We're being robbed. Click. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never come close to experiencing that or anything. I just, it was just so bizarre. And that uh-huh. was literally the day she was being born. And then years later when the episode was out, you know, the, I was starting the web show and I was getting some publicity. Um, it, I went back to that bank and this was in Arizona. I went back to that bank and told that story to someone and that person was that person. <laughs> and she said, Oh my God, that was me. And it was a totally different bank, but in the same city. And she, and she was, uh-huh. she had moved up in ranks there. Uh, she wasn't a teller anymore. And, um, I was just blown away. And I'm like, you must write that. You have to write about it on my wall on social. I please just do that. No one's going to believe me. And she said, I will, I will. And she never did. And I think it's because, and I don't know if I should even mention the bank. I guess it doesn't matter. It was bank of America. <laughs> and, um, uh-huh. And I don't know if, uh, if, if she just talked to her co-people and they're like, that's not the publicity we want, (laughs) (laughs) but she never posted it. And I was so mad and I haven't seen her. I haven't been back there, but (laughs) that's pretty cool. I don't know where I was going. What was the question? I mean, Uh, I got another cat, cat. right? No. And, um, so anyway, she was special and no, um, one day, yes, I'd love to get, I love cats. Um, one day I would like to have some more, but, but it wasn't like I chose angel, I guess is what I was trying to say. Uh, angel kind of came to me and, um, her mother chose me. Um, and, uh, that was, that's also part of the magic. Yeah. Well, oddly enough, the cat I was talking about was a stray cat. And at the time I had a bunch of other cats and she would come around very small, must've, you know, been born uh, somewhere, uh, nearby. And, uh, all the other cats, none of them would would let her, uh, you know, eat with them except for one of the one of my other cats, and so she would, uh, you know, she would share few food with her, and then mm-hmm. so I started putting food out for her, and and uh, eventually she let me pet her, and then uh, I kept her, and just for the whole time I had her, like I had her from junior high until I was in my thirties, and uh, and she wouldn't let anyone else near her, but I named her Faye because I named her whole name was uh, Faye the Gray Stray that came to my house one day, and now she's here to stay. So there you go. <laughs> That's nice. You know, there's a lot of people that like cats and like horror. There's a crossover there. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe it's it's something about the supernatural element of the cat. They're very, they're almost like supernatural creatures normally, right? And of course, there's the association with them and witchcraft and nine lives and ninth circle Uh of hell, you know, (laughs) some some commonality there. And uh, what I love about Angel is that she's not a black cat. 
She just mm-hmm. she she she's yes. it's actually the opposite. So I think mm-hmm. it breaks the stereotype, and and it's really interesting because she's super cute and cuddly looking, but she really was very she 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 was wild. I mean, she I've I've literally seen her go up to like four alley cats and scare them away when she got out. You know, like she was she mm-hmm. had something in her. Um, and so she, in fact, the only animal I saw her get along with was a pit bull (laughs) (laughs) and the pit bull didn't mess with her. They were just like, they kind of chilled and just hung out, you know, it was so weird. So Mm -hmm. she, she's like the rabbit in, in, in the Monty Python's, um, Knights of the Holy Grail, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's more more like angel. Yeah. Uh (laughs) I like, I I think that works for the story too. Like you're saying, because. Um, if, if it's like an evil looking cat, which you would think, you know, a black cat, at least that looks evil. It's a little bit, uh, kind of obvious, but, uh, it makes it, uh, it fits in better if it's just like a, uh, you know, a typical looking cat, the cat that looked like it would be just a nice friendly cat. Right. Right. It's more deceiving that way. And I, and I gotta tell you that yeah. works on the psyche too. That's why, uh, Lisa's character wanted to pet her. And that's why people don't expect, despite the warnings, expect what they're going to face off with. And so it's almost like it's 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 like the deadly, you know, warrior that doesn't look like they're a warrior, you know, like she's, she's more dangerous for that. And, and it has the power of like any kind of the omen or where you take someone small or innocent or cute or like Chucky the doll and, and mm-hmm. deep inside is this possessive, powerful spirit. It, 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 there is a level of humor to it, but there's also a level of fear, you know, that something so innocent and looking could be so dangerous that messes yeah. with your psyche. Right. And mm-hmm. then you don't yeah. know what to expect. So I think, I think that's um, a cool element to uh, having yeah. the cat and then also having angel. And of course, angel, yeah. right. What is, what was the sure, devil? Exactly. The devil was a fallen angel, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. so there's, there's that play on, on that. And her name was really angel. I think that I, I was cursed the moment I named her that it was like, it was like she, she did the opposite. <laughs> 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 yeah and uh it's almost like i was thinking michael myers in the original halloween because he's it's a, just an un, unassuming you know kid that could be any anyone's you know neighbor uh you know this could be anybody's cat right it can be mm-hmm. it could be anybody's cat and what and what if your your pet was possessed right you know exactly <laughs> it's uh <laughs> it's but then there's also the you're a cat owner right so any pet owners mm-hmm. will know you 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 you're Pet are, pets are like your children, right? And mm-hmm. you get very protective and, and possessive of them yourself, I think. And so when someone comes around and insults your pet or like doesn't, does them wrong, I mean, it's like your children. So there's a defensiveness right. there. You're also less likely to see when they do wrong, I think. I mean, how many pet owners are like, you know, get over it, you know, versus, oh, I'm <laughs> sorry about my pet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think it's funny to see Nick's character like there's these really crazy supernatural happenings and they're, and they're, they're getting worse and worse as the story progresses, but he's in a state of denial for most of it. And until it gets mm-hmm. to the point of no return. And I think that's really fun. That becomes funny, but also somewhat realistic, you know, to how we're blinded mm-hmm. by our love. You know, we're blinded right. by, you know, those we, try to, those we love, you know, it plays yeah. with love a lot. Like, you know, even the obsessiveness yeah. of love and how the foil character, I don't want to give that away either, but how, mm-hmm. you know, obsession and love and how they're two sides of the same coin sometimes. Yeah. You try to make excuses, uh, you know, why it's not, uh, bad or evil or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, 
you did mention uh, plans uh, for season two. Like, uh, uh, when would that happen if that was going to happen? I don't know at this moment. Right now, I'm just enjoying the ride of seeing um, sure. Hell's Katie out there as a film, the great press we've been getting on it, and the buzz. Um, and then of course, I'm going to be excited to see how that continues into March when we release it to the, so everyone can see it. And I, um, so I don't really know when that's going to happen. I'm taking some meetings and I'm, uh, I'm starting to, uh, talk to different people in, in Hollywood about other options here. So, um, so we'll see, but I really hope it does because I've really mapped this story out on such a level where some of these characters come back and I, I want to say it, but I don't even, I don't think I should yet, but like, right, right. but so, so many cool flips and it continues to be an homage to different films that I didn't get to cover but with these characters um, still involved in different levels. And um, I'll give you one little teaser kind of idea. Um, the, if you remember, remember American Werewolf in London, where a, the spirit of his friend keeps coming around. Well, course, imagine, yeah. imagine Adam. <laughs> I, love, I love it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So just, it's just, it's, there's so much fun. Um, yeah. And then, and then, and then, a real makeup artist moves in downstairs <laughs> <laughs> who's constantly tormented and screams a lot as a result. So yeah, it's just, just, there's so much, there's so much that I can play with um, to kind of take this to that next level. And of course it opens the floodgates with the, with the curse and um, uh-huh. not to give another spoiler, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I think personally, I think the second season has even a lot more potential. Um, I think the first one really just sets the stage and I hope I'm, I'm able to do that. Yeah. And oddly enough, I, uh, right before I talked to you, I taught, I uh, recorded another interview and, uh, his inspiration to making uh horror movies was American werewolf in London. So it seems oh, like, wow. uh, it's like, a, yeah. I think it's some kind of sign or something. Yeah. Maybe it is, but, uh, but I mean, it's one of the most classic horror films and sure, it's got sure. elements of comedy in it as well i i, yes, I think uh, i think that's, that's one, of the one best, of my favorites too yeah, yeah. it's one of the yeah. best combinations of comedy and horror because it totally works as just a straight up horror movie um but there's a lot so a lot of comedy in it if you're looking you know especially if you're looking for it yeah the, there is. comedy doesn't doesn't interrupt with the horror like there's still it's genuinely like a scary movie oh it's it hard absolutely. to pull up no it's it's amazing it's so well done and uh and then, the, you know, of course, Sam Raimi did brought a lot to that kind of mix um, with his series, his Evil Dead series, and, yeah. and what yeah. he's done in Drag Me to Hell even um, continued that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Joe Dante is like a master of it. I, I got I had the pleasure of meeting him. In fact, I'm, I'm going to try to get him to come to the premiere. I'm reaching out oh, to man. both of them, both of them, actually, yeah. um, they, because they were inspirational. And his he's done that so well with a number of his films as well. So. So yeah, I, I love that. When it works, it just it's. I think it can t- transcend and, and go to different levels um, and be more memorable for it. So, mm-hmm. and uh, real quick, what was it like to have uh, Nina Hartley uh, like uh, flog you on, on film? <laughs> it was an honor. <laughs> she, she's she's great. She's so fun, and I think she has a she has a, a comedy an ability with comedy that um, uh-huh. that can work too. Uh, that we uh, we've only begun to see if she continues to do things. Um, but she was great, and she she really knew her stuff too. She was she was telling us. I didn't even know how to put that thing in my mouth but <laughs> she, showing, she she just took over and showed me and uh she went to town she's uh-huh. already in character 
Um, and of course, there's other little tributes there. I mean, I, I, I love Quentin Tarantino a lot as a director, too. And I'm, I'm having a little fun with Pulp Fiction and things as well. And uh, with that, and uh, there's uh, I, I try I try to give tribute to uh, every every everything that's really inspired me and then the directors that really have uh, to me shown some originality in, yeah. uh, in uh, a I, world of very formulaic filmmaking. <laughs> and I think that for a project like this, it really works because uh, you know, the, the people are going to watch it or, are most likely like, you know, fans of horror movies and films. So when they see those things that they, that they recognize, you know, it, uh, it really adds to the experience of watching it. I think it does. And I, and I think, you know, the ability to, uh, to have fun with something that that's become so endearing and to take it to that level where it's something that you can bond with your friends and, and connect. And, and it almost becomes like flipping through an album, you know, of, mm-hmm. uh, this, 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 um, nostalgic feeling. I think that's just incredible when, when one can create that. And, and that's what I'm really happy about with the film and with Hell's Kitty. It's just, that uh, that I was actually able to do that. It, I mean, it, the challenges involved in the. I mean, it's not like I had a huge budget on this thing. I mean, the uh, the budget I had on this would maybe serve lunch for like one day on set <laughs> in any Hollywood production. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's literally that that low. Um, and in some of the comparisons it's drawing with other films that I know probably have had hundreds of thousands of dollars if not mm-hmm. more um, budget, which is just incredible to me. <laughs> so um, we, yeah. we definitely did a lot with um, what we had to work with. And, and that's real creativity to me too, you know, and, and I think that's, uh, it's fun when you're able to pull it off and, and, and uh, leave a mark, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, let's see, February 22nd, TLC Chinese theater. If you're in the area, I wish I, if I was closer, I definitely would be there. Uh, but it's a long ways here from Massachusetts, but uh, if you can make it, it's going to be a great time. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. And if you can't, uh, then, uh, you know, you can see it after. But definitely the, the premiere, because there's going to be a lot of people in attendance, too, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. We're we're, we're still locking in all the different talent um, that are going to be coming. But also, I've got a lot of talent that aren't in the film that are going to be coming down. I can't, I don't really want to say until I know for sure, because sure. I don't want to get people excited. But, um, sure. but I know I personally invited Barbara Steele. And I've been reaching out to Sam Raimi and to um, to Joe Dante, and we'll see if we can get him to come on down. It'll be a lot of fun. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you so much. I've been had a blast. Anytime. All right, definitely. We'll have you back for sure. All right, I'll leave you with this. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I'm gonna try me out. I haven't done this for a while. I'm out of practice, probably. No, I can't do it. My voice is, uh, I've had too much bourbon over the years. So, but, uh, I used yeah. to do a good meow, but, uh, you, you might, you, you might have to drink a little more bourbon to get it back. You know, it's just, a... <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Maybe, maybe that's a good idea. Clear out the fur balls, you know? <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks, man. That was a lot of fun. No, I had, a, I had a blast. Thanks. <laughs> well, I don't just haunt on Halloween. I'm an all-year-round nightmare queen. Keep your pumpkin heads I'm searching for. My heart instead. I heard a story of this. The dark dimensions. And this is the 